Good evening. It's a pleasure to welcome you here tonight. I'm uh, serving as the teaching elder and pastor of Hope Christian Church and is our honour to host this Trinity debate. And I thank you for coming. My first question is, who's travelled interstate to be here tonight? I know there's a few interstate. Where are you? Okay, they're being shy. There we go. There's a few hands there. There we go. Who's travelled internationally? All right, that's probably about it. So as I said, I'm the teaching elder and pastor here at Hope Christian Church. We have quite a representation from our home church and quite a representation from other churches abroad. I do hope that among us there are UPC, oneness people, and there are Trinitarians, and we're ready to hear a very sound, scholarly, academic, scriptural debate. We're looking forward to that. So to get underway, I'm going to do some introductions, and then we're going to let these uh, gentlemen get amongst it. So um, it is a pleasure to see you, and thank you for dawning our building this evening. First and foremost, I will start with the honorary Craig Zaki, who is our moderator. You stand, Craig. On the back side of one of these newsletters that you can get handed out at the door of all Craig's information and where he's been, what he's done, and why he's qualified to take on this moderation assignment tonight. Now, on to our debaters. First and foremost, I will introduce to you our oneness apologist, Mr. Roger Perkins. Mr. Perkins is a 44-year-old oneness apologist from Summit, Mississippi. Is that all right? Is that... Okay, okay, okay. I've been practicing that all week. He's authored numerous books and journal articles delivering apostolic apologetics. He's engaged in numerous public debates and is a member of the Apostolic Theological Forum. He is a former pastor on his return to the US. After tonight's debate, he will plant a new church. Our next debater from the Trinitarian position will be Dr. James White. Dr. White will affirm our proposition this evening. And as I said, you get yourself a handout and you'll read everything about him. This is exhaustive and I'm not going to try except to say Dr. White has two, what I can tell, two doctorates, one in ministry, one in theology. He has masters, he has bachelors, he has written 30 plus books and done over 110 moderated debates. So these are our guests tonight and these are the gentlemen that will go at it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll read the proposition and then I'll go no further and let our gentlemen have at it. So the proposition is this. If you have a handout again, you can read along on the front page. All the information is in here and this is how our proposition reads. Did the Son, as a self-conscious divine person, distinct from the Father and Holy Spirit, exist prior to his incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth? That's the question. Dr. James will have the affirmative and Dr. Roger will bring the negative. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce you to the Trinity debate here at Hope Christian Church. Thank you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the first segment of tonight's debate is where each speaker will get to propose their substantive argument addressing the topic. Each speaker will have 26 minutes and they will outline and define their case. Um, After this, then we'll have periods of rebuttal and cross-examination later. Um, I would now like to invite Dr James to open the affirmative case this evening. Well, 
Well, thank you very much. It is indeed an honor to be with you here in Brisbane this evening. Uh, this is my second time to, uh, to Brisbane, and uh, I truly enjoy the opportunity of meeting with, uh, with the brethren here. And this is, of course, an extremely important debate, and I hope that you will be very focused in hearing what both sides have to say uh, this evening. Uh, it is a pleasure to have Roger Perkins here. Uh, it is a, I can, now he knows, and I know. It's a long trip down here. And uh, hopefully he's been adjusted. I uh, was just in Sydney. I was at UNSW uh, doing a debate Monday evening with Abdullah Kunda, an Islamic apologist, uh, on the subject of the incarnation. So it is a, a similar topic that we are addressing this evening. And I am very thankful for the opportunity uh, to be with you indeed. The subject that we have is a very important one, the debate between historic Trinitarian belief and the modern oneness Pentecostal position touches upon all aspects of theology proper, including all aspects of Trinitarian theology itself. And while some other issues that we will not have time to get into this evening, what I'm saying is there's, there's many things that we will just barely touch upon tonight. Some things I will not touch upon that I think are extremely relevant, uh, but we need to be focused very much upon the central issue this evening. While some issues shed great light upon the viability of the respective views, as I will illustrate with the issue of Christ the mediator, there is only one issue that, in my opinion, absolutely settles the conflict in and of itself. And that is our thesis topic this evening. Did the Son, as a divine person, not as an idealized plan, not as a thought in the Father's mind, but as a divine person aware of his own existence and the existence of the Father and the Spirit, exist prior to the incarnation itself, that is, in eternity past. Our question is very simple. If the Son, as a divine person, engaged in activities that only a person can engage in prior to the incarnation, prior to his birth in Bethlehem, then we have clearly a refutation of the oneness position. For the whole aspect this evening will be, is there a Unitarian understanding of monotheism? That is, there is only one person that shares the one being of God, or a Trinitarian understanding of monotheism, where you have the one being that is God, infinite and eternal, shared by three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Everyone here this evening is a monotheist. I am not just a conceptual monotheist, I am a confessional monotheist and a functional monotheist. The question is, does the Bible teach that that one being, that one eternal being is God, is that shared by three persons? Or is that one being of God shared by only one person who takes different modes or relationships to his creation? I want to go to the Bible because I believe the Bible is the foundational document of the Christian faith. What I believe, I believe because the Bible teaches it. I am a biblical Trinitarian. It would be much easier to adopt a different perspective. But I believe in sola scriptura, the scripture alone is the sole infallible rule of faith of the church, and tota scriptura, I must believe all that scripture teaches. And so I must harmonize all of the divine revelation. I cannot pick and choose. I cannot put one part of the revelation over another part of the revelation. I must allow God's word to speak. And so I truly believe that the debate this evening will be decided in the inspired text itself, I hope, 
that you agree with me on that important issue this evening. Let's take a look at the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ as God, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following. Let me just remind you, this is a sermon illustration. The Apostle Paul is exhorting the Philippians to humility of mind, that they are to not look on their own things alone, but to look to the things of others. Even though the Christians have equality with one another, they're to lay aside that equality in the service of others. And so what do we have? Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You must have the same mindset among yourselves that was in Christ Jesus, who, although he eternally existed in the very form of God and morphe you who parkon, he existed in God's form. It's the same word that's going to be used of his entering into servanthood. If he was a true human, a true servant, then he was truly God, who, although he eternally existed in the very form of God, did not consider that is a word of something that a person does. To consider something, to think about something, that's what a person does, did not consider that equality he had with God the Father, something to be held on to at all costs, but instead he made himself nothing, kanao means to make oneself literally empty, but Paul never uses that way, he always uses it metaphorically, and so he makes himself nothing, and how does he do so? The amazing thing is it's not by ridding himself of anything, but by taking something on, by taking on the very form of a slave, there's Morphe again, by being made in human likeness. So what is the nature of the sons? Notice he says he made himself. That's a reflective pronoun. This is something the son does. The son makes himself nothing by taking on human flesh. This is the great humiliation. He who has been worshipped by, by the angels in heaven, who was seen by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, worshipped by the seraphim, the cherubim. He takes on a human nature. He invades his own creation. And having entered into human existence, he humbled himself, again, something he does, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death one dies on a cross. Because of this, God the Father exalted him to the highest place and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the mention of the exalted name of Jesus, everyone who is in heaven and on earth and under the earth bows their knee, and every tongue confesses Jesus Christ is kurios. The very same term used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of the name of God, Yahweh. Jesus, the Messiah, is kurios. But notice, all to the glory of God the Father. The confession of the exalted status of Jesus also results in the glory of God the Father. Now we have in these words clear indication of the pre-existence of the Son prior to the Incarnation. Christian exegetes down to the centuries have understood the passage to refer to the period prior to the Incarnation, when the Son had equality with the Father in heaven itself. But one this advocate say this passage refers to the time of Jesus' human ministry. If, in fact, the passage refers to the period before the Incarnation of Christ, then it is plain that the Son preexisted as a person, was active and divine, and hence the debate is concluded for the Trinitarian positions established. Now remember, gave consideration made himself of no reputation. These are acts of a person, not acts of a plan. If the son could consider his relationship with the father 
And in light of that, not hold on to that equality he had, but voluntarily lay it aside so as to take on a human nature. Isn't that exactly what Paul is telling the Christians to do? Don't look to your own things. Yes, you have equal rights, but lay them aside in the service of others. You want the greatest example of that? Look at the son who is eternally equal with the father and yet... For the glory of the triune God and the service of us, believe it or not, he lays aside those rights that are his. He enters into human existence and he becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I also point out to you, the one who became obedient to the point of death is the one who had equality with the father. That means this is clearly before the incarnation. The verbs tell the story. Have this attitude that was also in Christ Jesus, who although he eternally existed, not just as a plan, but he truly existed in the very form of God, did not consider action of a human uh, action of a person that equality he had with God, the father, something to be held on to at all costs. But instead, he made himself nothing action of a person by entering into human flesh. That's the incarnation by being made in the likeness of men. The verbs tell the story. This one was pre-existent and active as a person. This is clearly what is being said. Syntactically, Paul presents two verbal clauses separated by, by the adversative but, a law in verse 7. The actions of existing and consider equality go together. This is important since to consider is the action of a person. The key verb is made himself nothing. The possession of equality took place before the emptying. Taking the form of a servant describes the means of the made himself nothing, as does being made in human likeness. Jesus was made in the likeness of men, not on the night of his betrayal when he serves the apostles or at any other point. He is made in the likeness of men at the incarnation, not at a time later in his ministry. Therefore, this passage teaches the deity of Christ. He exists in the form of God as well as the distinct personhood of the Son prior to the Incarnation. The Son, as the Son, distinguishable from the Father, has eternally existed as a divine person. There is the first text that we will need to look at very, very carefully this evening. The next text we will need to look at, John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We will be focusing upon verse 5, obviously all of John 17, from my perspective is vitally important in the oneness debate. For I truly believe that the prayers of Jesus are one of the greatest stumbling blocks that stands in the way of anyone accepting as biblical oneness teaching. The idea that in the prayers of Jesus, this is an internal conversation within one person who's actually two persons, so that the human side is praying to the divine side simply doesn't work because in these prayers, Jesus not only refers to his preexistence, but he refers to himself in terminology that can only be in reference to deity. But if he's praying, then it's the human side, which is non-deity, that is doing the praying. And hence, the prayers of Jesus have truly been, I think, the greatest refutation down through history of all forms of modalism in their anti-Trinitarian expression. John chapter 17, verses 3 through 5 say, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I simply suggest to you, before we look any more closely at the text, that in any normative human language, any normative human language, that text presents one person speaking to another person. I don't think there's any question about it at all. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. So he's referring to the deity. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, well, to have eternal life is to know two persons? Yes, two persons. But Jesus Christ is distinguished because he's the one speaking. And he is sent. And he says, you have sent. Then I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, he identifies who he's referring to specifically. Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In any normative human language, that is one person making reference to another person. Now, look at the text even more closely. Given the personal pronouns, there is no question that these are the words of one person Speaking to another person, you have direct address, Father, me, the person speaking recognizes his own personhood, yourself recognizes the personhood of the Father, the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's talking about a period of time where the Father and the Son existed together, and it's before the world was, same time period we saw in the Carmen Christi. Together with yourself. A truly divine glory. Glorify me. If, if, if this is just a human nature speaking, then can human natures request to be glorified with a glory which they had in the presence of the Father before they ever came into existence? This is a truly divine glory. No plan or idealized concept can speak, let alone speak like this, of clearly divine and personal preexistence. A.T. Robertson wrote, with thine own self, para se auto, by the side of thyself. That's Robertson speaking. He's referring to the normal spatial use of, use of the preposition para. Jesus prays for full restoration to the pre-incarnate glory and fellowship, referring to John 1.1, enjoyed before the incarnation, John 1.14, the word became flesh. This is not just ideal pre-existence, but actual and conscious existence at the Father's side, para soy, with thee. Now, you can tell Robertson wrote a while back because we don't normally say thee and thou much anymore, but that's okay. What's his point? The point is that the, the words would have to be taken in a grossly unnatural way if what we actually have here is something about an idealized plan speaking Idealized plans do not look back upon a time before their fruition and say, back then I had glory with you. Restore me to that position that I had. Instead, here in Christ's high priestly prayer, 
very clearly we have the distinction between the Father and the Son, and yet the Son knows of a time when in the presence of the Father, before the world existed, he shared the very glory of the Father. Now remember, Yahweh said in Isaiah chapter 45 and Isaiah chapter 48, he will share his glory with none other. And so it would be blasphemous for a mere human nature, let alone an idealized plan, to somehow speak and say, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. This is clearly one divine person who has taken on human nature. He has voluntarily made himself of no reputation. He has entered into human flesh and he is about to experience the consummation of that work upon the cross. And then he knows that after that time is the resurrection the justification of the faithful servant and his entrance back into the state of glory. That's why he said in John 14, 28, if you, if you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going back to the Father for the Father is greater than I am. That term greater is positional, not better than I am, but in a greater position than I am. The Father wasn't being followed around by Pharisees, always trying to catch every word he said. He was going back into that presence of the Father that was his in eternity past. Indeed, as I said before, all the prayers of the Lord Jesus demonstrate the distinct personhood of the Son, yet they likewise prove the deity of the Son as well. These are not examples of the human side praying to the divine side, but of a divine yet incarnate person, the Son, communicating with a divine but non-incarnate person, the Father in heaven. Last main text of the three that I want to present, demonstrating the thesis that the Son pre-existed as a divine person before his birth in Bethlehem, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. We all know John 1, 1. You probably have discussed it maybe with some Jehovah's Witnesses who came knocking on the door, woke you up early on a Saturday morning. In the beginning was the Word. And okay, in Halagos, the term Ain is the imperfect form of I, me. It does not point to a point of origin in time where the word comes into existence. As far back as you push the beginning, the word already was. The word experiences timeless existence. And the word was with God, cross, face to face with. There is a relationship that exists and notice the use of the word ain again. It is an eternal relationship that exists, as we'll see, between the Father and the Son. The third clause, and the word was God. Kaitheia saying halagos, the os, the word was deity. I translate it that way because, for those of you who have studied this, the os comes before the verb. It is a pre-verbal and predicate nominative. Isn't that wonderful? What does that mean? Generally, it means that it is describing the nature of the subject of the clause. So what does John 1.1 tell us? The word has eternally existed. The word has relationship with the father and the word is as to his nature, deity. Now, we want to emphasize that second phrase. Who is the God with whom the word eternally was? This is the Father, as John tells us in John 1.18, the bookend to John 1.1. You have the, you know, you know the bookends you use on a shelf on one side and the other side. That's also a, a common uh, uh, tool in writing to say something in the beginning, you elaborate on it, and then you restate it at the end. What does John 1.18 tell us? No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son. The term is monogenes theos, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. 
So when it says no one has ever seen God, lots of people in the Old Testament saw God. But John goes on to say, it is God, the only son, the monogamous theos, who is close to the father's heart, who has exegeted him, explained him, made him known. The God who has not been seen is the father, but it is God, the only son, Jesus, the Messiah, who is close to the father's heart, who makes known the father. The God with whom the world, the word eternally existed is likewise the father. Yet this is exactly what John does tell us. For by using the phrase God, the only son in John 18, he clearly indicates that the son is and was deity and the son was with the father from eternity, just as we see in John 1, 1. So we have three texts that I firmly believe we must exegete in full this evening. I will challenge Mr. Perkins to give us in-depth, consistent reading of each one of these texts in their context to be able to provide a refutation of the assertion that has been made that each one of these texts, taken in context as they were written, presents the fact that Jesus existed as a divine person prior to his birth in Bethlehem. But I also want to ask two questions to wrap up our discussion and to focus it in our thinking this evening, because we're hopefully not just here this evening to have some kind of uh, abstruse discussion of of theological facts. This is about the gospel. This is about life. Hopefully we're here because we really believe these things matter. I certainly would say that's why I am here this evening. And so I have a couple of questions that would tie this issue directly to what we believe is the gospel. For example, if the son does not exist as a divine person before the incarnation, then what does Hebrews chapter 10, verse five mean? Because it says, therefore, when he came into the world, that's the son. When he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. You have prepared about who's the you. This is this is this is talking about the preparation of the body who prepared the body. The one who took the body is saying you prepared the body for me. So who is this since this is before the incarnation? I mean, it's talking about the preparation of the body. It's when he came into the world. So who are the people that are described here? I would say to you, this is the son making reference to the father as the book of Hebrews would very clearly make it. Make it known to us. All right. So there's one question. And then very, very important. Who is the mediator? If Jesus was actually the father in his deity and the son is but a human creature that came into existence in Bethlehem, sinless, but still a human creature, not eternal. Where is he now? Hebrews chapter nine, verse 24 speaks of the son and says, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. One of the greatest, most beautiful truths of the Christian faith is that this night. The sinless son of God, the God man. 
The lamb standing as if slain stands in the presence of the Father for me and for every person who has faith in him. And that is the surety of my peace with God. That is the surety of my salvation. It's not found in myself. It's found in the fact that there is one who has entered into the holy place. I am united with him. His sacrifice is my sacrifice. His resurrection is my resurrection. His righteousness is my righteousness. And he stands in the presence of the father. Finished. It is finished, he said. The lamb standing as if slain. And if I am in him, then the father sees his son, his work completed. And if I am in him, then I have a perfect relationship with the father. That's the basis of justification by faith. That's the basis of understanding the basis of God's grace. It's beautiful, but how does it work in oneness theology? Because if the Jesus was the father and the son, then who is Jesus now standing before? Because has the father left the son and now the son's just a human being and the father's become the Holy Spirit? And so who is is Jesus now just a is just a human nature appearing in the presence of the Holy Spirit? That's not what Scripture teaches. And so you see, these are not just side issues for us. These touch on the very gospel itself. So I want to ask you as the audience. Focus upon the thesis. Did the Son exist as a divine person distinguishable from the Father prior to his incarnation? That's the question this evening. Now you see why it's so important. Thank you very much for being here tonight. Thank you to Dr. White for opening the case for the affirmative which is the orthodox position and it's the status quo. With a less popular and possibly more difficult argument, we are now going to invite Mr Roger Perkins to the stand to open the negative case. Let's make him welcome. Thank you so much. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ and I first want to mind my manners and say how much I greatly appreciate um, Mr. Ireland and this local congregation here for having us out. Um, As Mr. White has already indicated, it's certainly a long way to go to fuss and argue, but but I'm glad I came and I'm glad to be here. And in fact, they've treated me so well that if they want me to come back and fuss and argue again, well, just let me know. I'll be glad to do it. Uh, But I certainly do appreciate and I appreciate Mr. White being here as well. But I I believe that Mr. White and I would both agree, and it may be the only place we do agree tonight, but this speaks volumes for your quest for truth and for your desire for truth. However you may conclude that truth, still, it speaks volumes for your quest for truth, and we're greatly humbled by that. I want to say at the outset that no remarks whatsoever uh, are intended personally um, against Mr. White or against anyone else in this building. Um, We are here because we care. But we do have to plainly identify our distinctives. So let me let me briefly do that. Let me get into um, our our distinctive positions, which have already been established to some extent. Um, but the Trinitarian and the oneness construct 
there are paramount reasons of why we have such a vast difference. Uh, basically, the reason is that we have an entirely different hermeneutical approach. That is, we have different launching pads. Typically, the Trinitarian starts with the New Testament and works their way back into the Old Testament, as my opponent has done tonight. That is, Trinitarians usually begin with the plurality of the New Testament distinctions of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then they end with the same plurality because they begin with a plurality. Oneness, folks, by contrast, begin with the foundation of the Old Testament, and we work from the concrete upward. We begin, as did the New Testament writers, with the Old Testament scriptures that declare that Yahweh is numerically one. Likewise, we end up with the same conclusion that Yahweh is numerically one. The Old Testament concepts prepare us to understand the message of the New Testament. As the Bible says that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. And the New Testament writers directly quote the Old Testament text approximately 300 times. Out of the 27 New Testament books, 20 endorse the Old Testament and its Hebraic concepts through quotes and references. Only six of the New Test- Old Testament books rather, are not quoted in the New Testament, and the Old Testament comprises roughly 70% of the Bible as a whole. When you combine the direct quotes, references, and allusions in the New Testament to the Old Testament, it references the Old Testament approximately 3,000 times. It's an educational principle, ladies and gentlemen, that you work from the known to the unknown. You work from the concrete to upwardly. No carpenter builds a house and begins with the roof and works his way down. You always start with the foundation and work your way upward. I will very respectfully tonight tell you that the Trinity doctrine, in our estimation, has a faulty foundation. They always begin with the roof, if I could put it like that, of the New Testament. No one learns calculus before they learn arithmetic. No one learns Shakespeare before they learn the English al- alphabet. Later revelation builds upon former revelation, not drastically alters it or amends it, particularly when it comes to God's very identity. The results in our different starting points is that oneness people understand the New Testament distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which we readily identify, which we readily concede, uh, as arising in the incarnation. This explains why we never see Father and Son distinctions in the Old Testament. Trinitarians understand the New Testament distinctions to be between three divine, eternal, co-equal individuals. My opponent has not hesitated one bit elsewhere to use the word individual as applied to the persons of the Trinity. The Trinitarians read back into the Old Testament instead of using it as a foundation, as did the New Testament writers. And the proposition tonight is, is basically that the Father and the Son exist prior to the Incarnation. Now, if this is the case, we should have no problem finding the Son in the Old Testament. But yet my opponent has appealed to Scripture after the Incarnation, not prior to the Incarnation. But yet I would ask, where is he at in the Old Testament? We don't find him in the Old Testament. Because Trinitarians begin with New Testament plurality, when they try to fit numerical monotheism into the equation, they wind up with the number one, being a oneness of unity, instead of allowing its most natural uses to be the cardinal numerical one. Probably going to be asserted tonight that we assume that the number one is one person instead of one being. 
Yet I'll tell you at the outset, there is absolutely no Hebrew or Greek distinction offered on the pages of the Bible separating being from person. Thus, the entire discussion is removed from the pages of Scripture, contrary to the Sola and the Tota Scriptura that we heard about tonight. I submit to you that no biblical distinction will be found between person and being. We are both a what, a being, and a who, a person, at the same time. And we are in God's image. We are his reflection. It's entirely, and again, I say this respectfully, but it is an entirely unbiblical Trinitarian invention in order to force a doctrine into a text that never states the same. Let me give you a few grammatical facts from the Old Testament uh, that says that we're not shows that we're not assuming that Yahweh is one individual, but that the text indeed forces us to believe that God exists as one individual. And indeed, oneness Pentecostals feel that we are held hostage by the very scriptures to deny the doctrine of the Trinity. The, the Tetragrammaton Yahweh is mentioned approximately 7000 times in the Old Testament. Virtually always, almost every time, it is mentioned with singular personal pronouns. The term God, Lord God, and Yahweh is mentioned over 12,000 times, and not one time will you find three divine individuals mentioned in the text. Approximately 9,000 times, God applies singular personal pronouns to himself. Trinitarianism would have us to impose three separate divine individuals back upon 9,000 singular personal pronouns, which is just a grossly unnatural interpretation and reading of a singular personal pronoun. 810,677 words, ladies and gentlemen, 31,103 verses, 9,000 singular personal pronouns by God's covenant people, and not one single time did they ever acknowledge a multi-individual deity in 4,000 years of Hebrew history. This is the scriptural environment from which the New Testament writers sprang and alluded back to. The New Testament writers' writings were Koine Greek indeed, but their paradigm was Old Testament Hebraic Hebrewism, which they were not seeking to radically alter. I submit tonight that 90 years of New Testament history does not radically alter 4,000 years of Hebrew revelation of God's very identity. Our position tonight is that the one Old Testament God that we read about loved humanity enough that he came down and manifest himself in the flesh in order to save us. This one Old Testament Yahweh assumed a human mind at the incarnation distinct from his divinity. Thus, there was a simultaneous conscious awareness of himself both as God and man without mixture. This explains why we see never any father and son distinctions in the Old Testament. Ask yourselves tonight, why is it that we never see, read, even read of the father and the son under the Old Testament? This would be very strange behavior for two eternal individuals with absolutely no dialogue from a second eternal divine individual. If there were no co-eternal divine persons in the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen, what would we expect? Nothing. What do we find, ladies and gentlemen? Nothing. Not until the New Testament that you read such interaction when God actually fathered a son in Luke chapter 1. This is precisely the reason that Jesus is called the Son of God. 
in the sense that God fathered a son at Bethlehem. And this is indeed the most natural understanding of the phrase son of, who Jesus is never identified as in the scriptures as God the son or an eternal son or a second of three divine individuals. Jesus is the God man. At times he spoke and acted from his genuine humanity. As for example, when he slept. And when he grew weary, yet Psalm 121 tells us that God, as God, neither slumbers nor sleeps. Yet Jesus slept in the bottom of the boat. Isaiah 40 says that God neither faints nor grows weary, yet Jesus grew weary on the well, Jacob's well. Yet Jesus did both all of these things according to his humanity. At other times, Jesus spoke and acted from his deity. When he forgave sins, whenever he walked on the water... As God, we would submit that he was transcendent, operating beyond the incarnation. As the son of God, he functioned within the self-imposed limitations of the incarnation in the sense that that self-same God that we've been reading about the whole time under the Old Testament is the one who came in the New Testament. So that in the final analysis, we have a full God and a full man without mixture. Now, we're probably going to hear tonight that one of the Pentecostals have a schizophrenic bipersonal Jesus and it is a total straw man. I don't know of a oneness Pentecostal alive who says that. I, I don't know of one, and I know many. Um, but I'm prepared to deal with it, and we will see tonight, before the night's over, that it's actually my honorable opponent who is guilty of splitting Jesus. But I'll just wait till that till that comes up. The natural implication of the Trinitarian position necessitates necessitates that the first and the third divine co-eternal individual within their own minds loved us enough that they ordered the second divine co-eternal individual with his own mind to endure the horrors of Calvary, to be beat, to be spit upon, to be whipped, and to be crucified. As Jesus himself said in John 7 and 28 and 8 and 42, I did not come of my own initiative, but he sent me. W.E. Vines and Joseph Thayer, I realize Thayer is a bit dated, uh, but you don't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's still some interesting things that he says. And also my opponent appeals to Joseph Thayer as well in his books right over here that I've got. But, but Joseph Thayer said that the Greek verb sent when he says, I did not come of my own initiative, but he sent me, is the Greek verb apostello, and it defines as to order one to go to another place. So the first and the third divine individual ordered the second divine individual to be beat, to be marred, and to be hung upon a tree. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the Trinitarian natural ramification of the belief. It's not a straw man, and I would ask my opponent tonight to adequately deal with John 8 and 42 from the Trinitarian perspective. Yet the oneness position is that the one we've been reading about the whole time under the Old Testament is the same one that arrives on the scene in the New Testament. The same familiar God we've been reading about in the Old Testament is the same one who came to die as a man. Ephesians 2 and 20 tells us that the New Testament church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Of course, a reference to the Old Testament prophets upon whom the New Testament writers built. This tells us that the teaches us rather that the Old Testament Jewish prophets and the New Testament Jewish apostles had the same foundation. No one is going to pick up their Bible and read from Genesis to Malachi and read the 9000 singular personal pronouns applied to God, which Mr. White tells us in the New Testament infers one person. So when we 
Try that out in the Old Testament, and one singular personal pronoun is applied to God 9,000 times. No one's going to read from Genesis to Malachi. Then turn the page to Matthew and read where it says he is God with us and naturally arrive that Jesus is the second divine individual in the Trinity. It is an entirely unnatural and forced interpolation. The Old Testament Jewish prophets did not understand God to be one individual uh, didn't understand God to be one individual with 9,000 singular personal pronouns. Then the New Testament Jewish apostles come along and add two divine individuals to God. They had the same foundation, not different foundations. Uh, John chapter 4 and verse 22, Jesus says that the Jews know what they worship. Now, Mr. White has derided me on his show, The Dividing Line, um, over and over on my usage, many things, by the way, but but on my usage of Gnosko versus Oida. But I'll just let him argue with Dr. W.E. Vine here tonight. Dr. Vine says this, the differences between Gnosko and Oida, well, let me explain first. There, there's two words. Jesus says the Jews know what they worship. Now, there's two Greek words for no, primarily, there, there's other, but primarily two Greek words, and that is gnosko and oida. W. Vine says this. He says the differences between gnosko and oida demand consideration. Gnosko frequently suggests progress in knowledge, while oida suggests fullness in knowledge. Now, again, Mr. White can argue with W.E. Vines. I didn't write that. That didn't come out of my mouth. That come, I read that in his book. Um, so Jesus carefully uses the stronger term, oida, in John chapter 4, when he says the Jews know what they worship. How could the Jews know what they worship when the Jews have never worshipped uh, three individuals in a trinity? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, according to this construct, were all ignorant of God's true identity. The prophets who wrote about him, obviously, we would have to conclude, had a misunderstanding of who he really was. If that's the case, how can we trust the Old Testament writings or the New Testament writings, which is founded upon the Old Testament? The consequences of the Trinity doctrine would be that the Jews did not know what they worshipped, in contrast to the words, very words of Jesus. They only worshipped one individual divine individual who described himself with 9,000 singular personal pronouns. And my opponent has stated repeatedly that the revelation of the Trinity took place between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The apostles, he says, were the first experiential Trinitarians. Yet it would be incredible to think that Yahweh's Old Testament covenant people, such as Abraham, who is uh, presented to us as the friend of God, David, who was the man after God's very own heart, uh, on and on I could go, but they all misunderstood God's very fundamental identity, and they never truly experienced God. Yet Moses stood on Mount Sinai and spoke with God mouth to mouth, but apparently he never truly experienced the true God. The Old Testament repeatedly prophesied to us that the Messiah would come and that he would be the one God of the Old Testament. Isaiah 35, Jesus, uh, it, it says this, it says, your God shall come, who? The Jews' God shall come. Then shall the blind eyes be opened and the deaf ears unstopped. Who did Isaiah say would come, ladies and gentlemen? The second person of the blessed Holy Trinity? No. The one Old Testament singular God of the Jews. And this self-same God became known as God the Father after he begat, the, begat a son at Bethlehem. Isaiah 44 and 6 said one king. Now, if anybody just stood up and said there's one king, nobody's going to think that that's three persons. 
That's the natural understanding of one king is one person. And this one king says in Isaiah 44 and 6, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God beside me. Singular personal pronoun. Isaiah 43, 11, I, singular personal pronoun, am Yahweh. There is no savior besides me. Singular personal pronoun. Isaiah 43, 12, I, singular personal pronoun, am God. No one can deliver out of my Hand, singular, right, singular personal, my hand, one hand. What does that naturally come into your mind when I mention one king and one hand, I, me, what comes to your mind? Three persons in the Trinity or one person? Naturally, one person. I could take you to thousands of verses where one individual speaks with singular personal pronouns, which Mr. White tells us in the New Testament indicates person. When God the Son speaks with a singular personal pronoun, that's one person, he tells us. When God the Father speaks, that's one person. You, But then when we apply that to 70% of the Bible and 4,000 years of Hebrew revelation, the Trinitarian position is undercut. Um, I could take you to over 900 uh, verses where the Hebrew word for echad, or for one, echad, means a singular numerical one, and it's certainly how those who heard it understood it. Uh, of course, the Shema, I could get into that, but don't have time really. But having clearly established now, both biblically and historically, that the God of the Old Testament is one singular individual with absolutely, and there's so much more uh, I could give you, but with absolutely no understanding of a trinity of divine individuals or separate persons. Let's look at the New Testament now. Jesus authenticated the Old Testament in Mark chapter 12, whenever he says that the most important commandment of all is that we believe that the Lord is one. Now, there are three Greek words for one. And again, Mr. White has has been pretty hard on me on his dividing line and derided me pretty good. Uh, So I've been been having it packed up for about three months. I've been waiting to get here. So y'all just have mercy on me. But 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 he uh, he told me here that Mr. Perkins confuses highest Mia and him, the three Greek words that are translated as one. And he says they just mean one. Well, I know that. That's what I said. I said they mean one. But it's the genders that are important. Heist is generally in the masculine singular. Hen is in the neuter singular. And that I could get into Mia in the feminine singular, but that's really outside of our purposes right now. But Jesus purposefully employs the masculine singular heist in Mark chapter 12, ladies and gentlemen, when he says that the Lord is one. Let's see what a few New Testament Greek lexical authorities say about the masculine singular heist. And, and we're going to see it's not abuse, as I have been charged with. If I am charged again tonight with abuse of lexicons, I'll just simply pull out my honorable opponent, some of his abuse that I've noted, and I've got the articles right there. But but you know, let's look at what some a few lexicons say about this Greek word heist in the masculine singular. Spiros Zodiades, Hebrew and Greek study Bible, page 1686, number 1520, says about heist, this is the first cardinal numeral, numerically one, one person. Thayer's, page 186, says that this is a cardinal numeral, one singular alone. He translates the masculine singular heist in Galatians 3.28 as one person. So does the New English Bible, by the way. Robertson's Word Pictures, volume 5, pages 186 and 278. Speaking of heist in the masculine singular, he says this is one Person, I could point you to Bauer's Greek English lexicon as well. But even more importantly, you could look on page 208, footnote 46 of my opponent's book, The Forgotten Trinity. And he argues that the masculine singular denotes personhood. 
To further illustrate highs, the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Echad in Ezekiel 33:24 translates it like this. It, it says that Abraham was only one person or one man. The Tanakh, the RSV, the New Living Translation, the Amplified, the NIV all translate this as one man. This, ladies and gentlemen, or one person also. This is the same word that Jesus purposely chose to identify God. Um, Kenneth Weiss Word Studies, Greek New Testament, Volume 1, pages 106 to 107. Heist is masculine and therefore refers to a person. God is one individual. Jesus carefully employs the masculine singular heist and commands us to believe that the Lord is one person. And he uses the most emphatical word possible for God's identity. I would ask you tonight, how in the world can we force three divine individuals into this very exclusive word? Heist is used almost 100 times in the New Testament relating to personhood, and not one time does it relate to more than one person. This, I'll tell you again, is the word that Jesus Christ himself chose to identify God. Uh, On ABN, while my opponent was discussing John chapter 10 and verse 30, in part one, he said this. He said in John 10 and 30, uh, Jesus used the neuter one. So it's not one person, he said. Go look it up for yourself. It's his very words. He says that he employs the neuter, not the masculine. Thus, he's not referring to personhood. In other words, if Jesus would have employed the masculine in John 10, 30, we would have a person. Well, let's just go right back and apply that logic to Mark chapter 12 and verse 29, where Jesus did use the masculine singular highest to identify who God was. And he said that this is the first of all the commandments, the most important commandment. So everything else that we read about the identity of God has to fall under this exclusive term. And like Likewise, uh, in Galatians 3 and 20, also you can read. Um, On the dividing line, Mr. White said that these Greek words simply mean one. Well, that's my whole point. They mean one and not three. Uh, Robertson, Fawcett and Brown, Marvin Vincent, the New English Bible, all translate Galatians 3 and 28 as one man or one person. And it's the masculine singular, heist. In the September 7th, 2010 podcast around the 14 minute mark, Mr. White made this statement. He said, the scriptures do not tell us that God is one person. Well, they sure don't tell us God is three persons either. But if you turn to the Amplified Bible, ladies and gentlemen, all you got to do is turn there and read it for yourself, because I'll probably be accused of of abusing it. But you can read yourself. And it says now a go between or an intermediary has to do with and implies more than one party. Yet God is one person. You can read that for yourself. The antithesis is that the function that a mediator does not perform, God is. In other words, a mediator is not a mediator for for one person, but God is one person. I'm not sure how it could be any plainer than this. It's very, very clear language. Uh, The New English Bible, the Amplified Bible, the RSV, the New Living Translation, the NIV, Spiros Zodiades, A.T. Robertson, Joseph Thayer, Kenneth Weiss, each of these linguists translates the masculine singular heist as one person, and it's the same lexicons that my opponent uses in his book. Jesus is, ladies and gentlemen, the one Old Testament God manifest in the flesh to us for the sake of the redemption of mankind. He is not a second of three divine individuals in a trinity that absolutely no one knew existed for 4,000 years. This is not misusing and abusing lexicons. I'll say it again. But again, I will demonstrate tonight before it's over my opponent's 
misuse. The lexicons give the literal definition, and from there they begin their commentary, and they begin their interpretation. I know that, but a literal definition is not commentary. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says this, In Christ dwells all the fullness, possible pleroma, of the Godhead in bodily form. The Greek word for all, lexicographers define as the whole, everything. The Greek word for fullness is pleroma. Bowers, page 672, defines pleroma like this. The full measure of deity, see Colossians 2 and 9. If I'm accused of misusing it and taking it out of context, they say this in, in Bowers' lexicon. Vines, page 137, defines this word as God in the completeness of his being. The whole completeness or full measure of God's being dwells in Christ. Who, allowing the text just to speak for itself, would read Colossians 2 and 9, where it says, For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and conclude that Jesus is the second divine individual in the Trinity. It is a grossly unnatural, forced interpolation into the Word of God. I have another page here, but my time is up. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you, Mr. Perkins. A spirited reply and indeed throwing down the challenge to our affirmative status quo. Ladies and gentlemen, we're now entering uh, the next phase of the debate and this is a series of rebuttals. Now, a rebuttal section is where each speaker gets to attack the main arguments of their opponent. They need to attack it substantively and then link it back into their own argument to once again demonstrate the strength of their own case. No new material or brand new arguments can be introduced at this stage. New examples can be introduced, but no brand new arguments. Each speaker will have 15 minutes in their first rebuttal round, and after this first round we will have a short break, and then we'll have a second rebuttal round after that. So I'd like to invite our affirmative speaker, Dr James White, for his first rebuttal. Let's make him welcome. Well, thank you very much. I hope you were listening very closely so that we can get right to the important material here. Mr. Perkins has said that we have entirely different hermeneutical approaches. Yes, I would suggest to you that when you do what Mr. Perkins says we should do, and limit God's revelation of himself only to what you have in the Old Testament, or at least how Mr. Perkins understands the Old Testament, then why did Jesus come? Because when you think about it, what happened in the coming of Jesus Christ? Are we seriously to say that, well, you're limited in your understanding of God to what you can derive from the Old Testament, and there could be nothing more? Apply that to the book of Hebrews. Think what would happen to the book of Hebrews if the Jews took the position Mr. Perkins does. Because everything the book of Hebrews says, those were types and shadows. There's a greater fulfillment. There's something much more. Oh, no, 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 no. You've got the wrong hermeneutical approach. If you, do, if you do that, then you have to dismiss the entirety of the apologetic portion of the book of Hebrews, which is all the book of Hebrews is about. We accept everything the Old Testament says. We start with the Old Testament. It says there's one God. The problem is it does not say that there's one Unitarian God. And you can have all the singular pronouns. I don't know how many times you heard singular pronouns. That's not even an argument tonight. I believe in the singular pronouns. All the argument is, well, if he was a Trinitarian God, he would have used plural pronouns. 
The revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity takes place in the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit of God. That took place between the Testaments. We have to allow God to be free to reveal himself. What if the people later on after Moses said, we're only going to stick with Moses. We're not going to accept anything that Isaiah says. You see, this is not a meaningful hermeneutical approach whatsoever. He says, we should have no problem finding the Son in the Old Testament. Well, again, the specific revelation of the divine persons takes place in the Incarnation and in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God between the Testaments. But I see the Son in the Old Testament, and so did the early church writers called the Apostles. We see him in Psalm 2, kiss the Son. We see him in Psalm 22, the Messianic Psalm. We see in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who's to come. We see him in Isaiah 43, the I Am, that Jesus quotes from himself in John 13, 19. We see him in Genesis 18, the Yahweh who walks on earth and rains fire and brimstone from Yahweh in heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah. We see him in Isaiah chapter 6. He's the one seen, according to John chapter 12, by Isaiah himself. Even in Isaiah 9, 6, we have a child that is born to us. Yalad, the, the Hebrew root there, refers to natural birth. But a son is given to us. I see him all over the place. But the specific revelation of that takes place in the incarnation. Now, we said that there is no biblical distinction between being and person. Is that what we were told? Yet, oneness folks use those categories. In fact, Mr. Perkins, in talking about Jesus, said that he assumed a human mind. Where's that kind of category in the New Testament? Where's that kind of language? If we're going to say, well, you have to use only biblical language, can the oneness person explain the relationship of the divine and human in Jesus without, without violating his own standards at that point? We need to be consistent at that point. Now, um, first and third persons, we are told, the first and third persons sent the Son. And I was asked to deal with John 8.42. This is another wonderful example of where we have to allow the scriptures to speak for themselves. We must harmonize them, not set them in contrast to one another. When Jesus says he was not, he did not come of himself, he, he says, op ml follow the use of reflexive pronouns in the Johannine corpus, and you will discover in John chapter 5, Jesus says he does nothing op of himself. Here he says he did not come of himself. That does not mean he did not come voluntarily. Yes, he is sent by the Father. He has the Father's authority. He is the one sent by him. No question about that. But how many times does Jesus have to talk about the voluntariness of his coming for it to be found true? We looked at it in Philippians 2. He made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. How clear can it be? We have to allow all of Scripture to speak. We don't set Scripture in contrast to Scripture and say that it somehow is contradictory. Now, it's interesting. In a previous debate, Mr. Perkins had many times had said, well, oida means this and gnosko means this. Oida means certain knowledge. Gnosko means partial knowledge. Now he says, well, Vine says that frequently it can mean this. And I'm glad that I've had some positive effect upon Mr. Perkins' knowledge of syntactical categories in the Greek language. Because the fact of the matter is, oida and gnosko have overlapping syntactical categories, semantic meanings, and there are places where oida does not mean full knowledge, and there are places where gnosko does. That's simply the point that I was making. If Mr. Perkins would like to uh, argue that, then I would ask him to show me any of his lexical sources that say what he himself has said in the past, that oida has this meaning, and gnosko has this meaning, and that they are different from one another, and that they are not semantically related. 
It is said the Old Testament saints, if the Trinity is true, the Old Testament saints did not know who they worshipped. That is not true. God had revealed himself to them up to a certain point. But this again leads us to the exact same problem I noted before. If you limit the New Testament revelation the way that Mr. Perkins is limiting and saying, no, 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 we see Unitarianism in the Old Testament, so that's what the New Testament has to be saying then you've destroyed all the further revelation that comes out in regards to the very gospel itself. For example, the Old Testament said that the Old Testament priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, is perpetual. It's eternal. I can guarantee you there are no Levitical priests at Mr. Perkins' church. So if he's going to be consistent, he has to recognize that those Old Testament paradigms must be seen in light of New Testament fulfillment. You don't make the Old Testament something that this is the final revelation and now there can be nothing more in the New Testament. He doesn't do that in many areas of his worship and belief. Why does he do it in this area? It's because of a specific tradition. Uh, We did hear a a discussion in the book from, I think it was from Isaiah, where God talks about his hand. And in John chapter 10, why do the Jews pick up stones to stone Jesus? Because he has said... He gives eternal life to his people. No one can snatch them out of his hand. The father who is greater than all, no one can snatch them out of his his hand. I and the father, we are one. Plural verb. S-men, we are one. Not I is one. The whole point of the statement, John 10, and the comment that I made that was quoted in partial uh, by Mr. Perkins, was that the oneness spoken of is not a oneness of person, It is a oneness of purpose in the salvation of God's people. And that's where the evidence of the deity of Christ from that text even comes from. Also, what I criticized Mr. Perkins for was standing before a group of people and upbraiding his opponents, saying, you don't even know what the Greek term is. When the fact of the matter is, if he looked up Heis in Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich and Donker, he looked up under Heis. If he looked up Hen, guess what he looked under? Heis. If he looked up Mia, what did he look under? Mia. Every first-year Greek student knows heis mia hen is the lexical form of the singular ordinal. That's how you learn it when you learn Greek. That was the whole point of my raising those issues. When I talked about lexical abuse, I'm not going to project it up here. I could uh, if we wanted to. If we wanted to plug in and take the time to do that. But I could show you lexicons. Bauer, Gingrich, and Donker is the current standard Bauer, B-Dag now. They've, they've changed it to the second to third edition. That lexicon is the standard edition. When you read it, it gives you multiple meanings depending upon usage. It gives you a general meaning, and then the lexicon, if it is a complete lexicon, will break down the meaning and apply the specific meanings in particular texts. Many times what Mr. Perkins is doing is taking the general meaning, not even looking at how the lexicon actually applies its own interpretation and saying, ah, there it is. My friends, when you study lexical semantics, you discover that every word has a meaning in its context. And if you're going to take a general meaning and cram it in there, then you better be prepared to look at syntax and verbal forms and everything else that comes along with it, because that's what serious translation of the Greek New Testament involves. Um, He he mentioned that I said, well, the masculine singer refers to personhood. Yes, I was contrasting the fact that generally when the Greek uses a masculine term, it is referring to a person. 
And when it uses a neuter term, it refers either to a group together or to some other concept. I was discussing the general use of that. It is a valid term, and I would defend that in my discussion of those particular texts. Then we had long lists of people that said, well, they translated this as one person. And if you looked, if you took the time to look, we're talking about Galatians 3.20. Now, a mediator is not for one, whereas God is one. Now, what does that mean? A mediator is not for, and the New American Standard says, one party only, whereas God is only one. And so what is being discussed there? Why would anyone be talking about this? It's talking about the fact that this idea of mediation involves two parties. He's talking about mediation. He's not discussing the Godhead. He's not asserting Unitarianism. And I can guarantee you when it says, well, the Amplified Bible says one person. I work for the Lachman Foundation. We published it. I can guarantee you we're not Unitarians. That's not what we intended to communicate by that translation. And my dad studied under Kenneth Weiss. I can guarantee you Kenneth Weiss was a Trinitarian, not a Unitarian. All right. So what do we have then? Let's refocus because we need to. Folks, what's the thesis? The thesis is, did the son exist as a divine person prior to his incarnation in Bethlehem? What's the only place in the Bible that's going to give us certain knowledge of that? But the very texts that address the relationship of the father and the son, which is in the New Testament, is the argument tonight. We can't look at Philippians 2. We can't look at John 1. We can't look at John 17 because the Old Testament won't let us because we can't go past the Old Testament in our revelation of who God is. Is that the argument this evening? I certainly hope not. And one of my disappointments right now is it would be difficult, I would think, in 15 minutes for Mr. Perkins to even provide a meaningfully full exegesis of those three texts, which we must have. I submit to you if the argument is, well, it can't mean what he said because of what I said. That is not a meaningful scholarly argument. We need to hear that if all that is true, if using 9,000 singular pronouns means that Unitarianism is true rather than monotheism is true. I say it means monotheism is true. If that's what it means, then we still need to know what these texts are about. And it needs to come from a deep exegesis of the text. None of that has been touched as yet. One of my favorite verses was cited, and that was Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Beautiful, beautiful text. I believe it. But you see, I read it in its context. The context is an anti-Gnostic polemic. And you see, before you ever get to Colossians 2.9, you've already read Colossians 1. And Colossians 1 has already differentiated the Son from the Father. And it has already told us that the Son is divine, not a mere human being. It is said that we have been transferred into the kingdom of his Son. And then in describing the Son, it says, by the Son... All things are created, whether in heaven and earth, visible or invisible, principalities, powers, dominions, or authorities, all things created by him and for him. And in him, all things soonest they can, they hold together. That's the sun, folks. And that was said before Colossians 2.9. So you've got to allow that to happen. How can the sun be the one? Who created all things. Paul exhausts the Greek language. He exhausts the number of prepositions he could use to say that Jesus is the creator. 
And then when he says in Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Is that making him the father? Is that making him the spirit? No. What we believe is that each of the divine persons shares fully the one being that is God. God's being can't be cut into parts. God's being is not a pie that's been cut into three pieces. And since the Son truly is deity, the creator of all things, yet distinguished from the Father, but since the Son is truly deity, then we are not to be taken, of, taken captive by empty philosophy, vain traditions. He is to be the standard of all things because in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That would have been like scratching. This isn't a chalkboard, so it doesn't work anymore. But if that was a chalkboard, I went back there and I ran my fingernails down. Those are the older people in the audience are going, oh, the younger people are going, what? What's he doing? I understand. Colossians 2.9 would be like pulling your fingers down a chalkboard to a Gnostic because he's just said the pleroma, the fullness of that which makes God, God, deity, dwelt bodily, not just dwelt, but is dwelling bodily in Jesus. That's a present tense. And so I'd like to ask Mr. Perkins a question. If that makes Jesus the father and now Jesus is now the deity is the spirit or however it is he understands that. This says that at the time Paul wrote this, all the fullness of deity is dwelling in Jesus bodily. Is that union still there or has the father become the spirit and is now dwelling us? I don't know. I'll leave that to Mr. Perkins to respond to. Let's listen. If we get full exegesis of those key texts in the next 15 minutes, thank you for your attention. Thank you, Dr. White. To respond to those challenges and to attack the affirmative position, let's welcome once again Mr. Roger Perkins. Now, I would first like to say tonight that um, I've been accused of not interacting with the text None whatsoever. We had already agreed that we were going to state our definitive positions. We were going to clearly identify our positions, and I was asked to do that by Mr. Ireland. So I was only doing what we were told to do. I have got every one of his arguments that he has brought up right here, and many of them that he hadn't brought up, from an exegetical standpoint. So um, it's really a moot point to accuse me of not, of basically accuse me of dodging his issue. I'm not going to dodge nothing. I'm not scared of one verse he brings up here. Now, he said to us that, according to Mr. Perkins, we can't limit God's revelation. Um, and if that's the case, then why did Jesus come? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus, in the Old Testament, said that your God will come. didn't say a second person in the Trinity is going to come. He said your God will come. And that's exactly what happened. The one God came. The Father, first person and the third person, didn't love a humanity enough that he ordered the second person to go down and be beat and spit upon. The one Old Testament God came. Uh, he said we should apply that, uh, Mr. Perkins' hermeneutic, to the book of Revelation, uh, excuse me, to the book of Hebrews. Well, exactly. The book of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament more than any other of, of, of the, except for Matthew, I think, quotes the book of the Old Testament more than any other of the epistles. And what I am saying is that he is offering a radical alteration of 9,000 singular personal pronouns in the, in the Old Testament that when we come to the New Testament, but then he applies that and says, God the Father speaks with a, a singular 
personal pronoun. So that's one person. He speaks to God, the son. The son speaks to him. They each use singular personal pronouns, which would necessitate one person. I'm just asking him to be consistent and apply the same hermeneutic to 70 percent of the Bible, 4000 years of Hebrew revelation and them that knew God on most intimate terms. And when he does, the Trinitarian position is collapsed. Uh, He said, I believe in personal pronouns. Well, I hope he does. I hope he believes in 9,000 of them, where God said, I am all alone, and I'm by myself. I created all things all alone. He said, well, why was Psalms 2 and Isaiah 53 uh, uh, mentioned that that were the case? Uh, well, it, they were prophetical. He said he finds the Son, excuse me, in Psalm 2 and in Isaiah 53. And you certainly do. You find him prophesied to come, but you don't find it, which we, we know that. But you don't find the Father and the Son interacting now, do you, under the Old Testament, which is very strange. That God the Father and God the Son, two eternal persons in a trinity that no one knew existed for 4,000 years, and they had absolutely no interaction whatsoever. Uh, he says that you can't cut God into parts, but yet he just told us that one Yahweh walked on the earth, and he rained fire from another Yahweh in heaven. But he said we can't cut God into parts. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one Yahweh. So how many Yahwehs do we have now, ladies and gentlemen? If you've got one standing on the earth commanding the other to rain down, I don't know where the third one's at, but if you've got three that are all separate, separated, don't tell me we're not cutting God being into parts. We certainly are. And he says, where's the language of a, a human mind? Well, that'd be Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, the historical Messiah, almost every time you see those two together, Christ Jesus, it is a reference to the historical Messiah. Philippians chapter 2 has absolutely nothing to do with the pre-existent second person in an imaginary trinity that no one knew existed for 4,000 years. And I will be glad to deal with that in the cross-examination time. Um, I'll get to it right here in a minute if I can. But he says that God was revealed up to a certain point in the Old Testament. Yet they knew him on the most intimate terms that there possibly was. He spoke with personal pronouns. What uh, he said to Moses, he uh, said to Aaron and to Miriam, rather, I speak to Moses as a man mouth to mouth. What does that what does that tell you? If I say I'm speaking to you right now with one mouth, how many persons am I, ladies and gentlemen? Nobody would say that I am three persons. And God said, I'm speaking to Moses mouth to mouth, one mouth speaking mouth to mouth. Um. He said that Oida, he, he derided me for Oida and said that I have had, he's had a, glad he's had an impact on me with the syntactical value of the Greek New Testament. Well, he has. And in fact, he has. And I'm more solidified now that the one's position is right than I was before I started listening to him. So he's helped me a lot. But he says that, you know, he, he derides me for Oida. Well, he needs to deal with Mr. Vines. I didn't say that. We didn't hear one thing about Vine, did we? Sure didn't. I quoted you from Dr. Vine, W.E. Vine. So he can argue Dr. W.E. Vine. I didn't say that. I just read it. Um, and so he tells us, well, I wonder if there's any Levitical priest in Mr. Perkins's uh, church today. Well, absolutely not, because the Levitical priests are not the identity of God. We're talking about the very identity of who God was. He's telling us Moses and all of them only knew him up to a certain point. You know, God just only revealed it up to a certain point. Yet they knew him on the most intimate level. They knew him face to face. Jacob wrestled with him face to face and so forth. Now, he says that... Um, he says that, that uh, I think he's saying that Galatians 3.20 is not asserting Unitarianism. Turn there for yourself in the Amplified Bible. Go home and don't take my word for it. You read it for yourself. It says God is one 
person. He says the context. I know the context. I've read it quite well before I got up here tonight. And the context does absolutely nothing to damage that point whatsoever. He says that his dad studied under Kenneth Weiss, and Kenneth Weiss was a Trinitarian. I know every one of these are Trinitarians, except for Thayer. But yet he has no problem quoting Thayer when he wants to quote Thayer. And guess what, folks? Thayer was a Unitarian. So it works for him when he wants to do it. But when I do it, I get in trouble. So I'm asking for consistency tonight. Um, and so he says that uh, Col- we, uh, he, Paul said Colossians 1, for he said Colossians 2 and 9. So now we raise up one scripture against another. Now it's over. Well, Paul says this, so it can't mean this over in Colossians 2 and 9. No, that's not the way we do hermeneutics, ladies and gentlemen. We harmonize scripture together. <clears throat> and when it says, for in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Again, I'm asking you, is it normal to read Colossians 2 and 9? Hey, Jesus, second person in the Trinity. Absolutely not. That is not the normative understanding of the passage. Now, um, well, let me deal real quickly with John 17 before I get accused of ignoring it. But in John 17, he said this. He said in John 17, 3, and I've got three pages on it tonight. I'll never get to it all. I know that. But he said that any normative understanding of John 17 would not denote uh, a plan, as he said, I don't know that we would just say oh, it was only a plan uh, and so forth. I think that he would, should allow me to speak for myself, which, which I'm going to do here. But let's talk about any normative language, ladies and gentlemen. Who would read John 17 and 3 where it says, and now, get the picture, coming from God the Son, and now, O Father, now, Father, the hour has come. And then he says in verse 3 that they may know you, Father, the only, monos, true God. Now, who? Talk about normal understanding and normal language. Who's going to read that? And say, well, you know what? Jesus is the second co-equal person in the Trinity. Nobody. So I hope he will allow normal understandings to, to stand. We certainly do. Then he said, Jesus is distinguished from the Father. We know that. It does no good to quote and say that Jesus is distinguished from the Father. We, we believe that. But in John chapter 8 and verse 40, ladies and gentlemen, same book of John that we're reading right here, Jesus tells us what the distinction is. He says, you hate me, a man who has heard from God. You hate me, a man, because I heard from God. He qualifies who the me and the I were, a man who heard from God, someone other than me. And so we believe in the distinctions between the Father and the Son. We believe that the Son is the one Old Testament God in his human existence. He's still God, but he's got a certain aspect of God, a certain role of God. He is God in his human existence, ladies and gentlemen. And Mr. White told me, uh, uh, derided me on the dividing line, and he said, when Jesus speaks... It is the entire person of Jesus speaking, not just a part of person, a part of Jesus speaking, but his entire person, not just his humanity or just his deity, but the whole person that's speaking. I hope he's going to stick to that in verse 5. Because when Jesus said, now, O Father, glorify thou me with the glory I had, does that include his humanity? Or now we're going to split Jesus and say he's only talking about his deity. We're talking about his humanity there. I hope he'll stick to the same criteria that he's accused me of. He's accused me of splitting Jesus and me of having a schizophrenic Jesus. And yet I would ask him to stick to his own criteria. And in verse 5, was that the whole person speaking still? Was that still the whole, his whole humanity, his whole deity, everything? Or was it just a preexistent divinity? Now we're stripping him of his humanity, which is the very thing he charges me with. Um, he says that we would have to wrestle it with grossly unnatural words in John 17 to come up with the oneness position. Yet he takes 9,000 singular personal pronouns and says, this is really three persons of the God is. But he tells me I'm the one who's applying a grossly unnatural interpretation. Um, he says that Yahweh 
says that he does not share his glory with none other. He certainly did. And he used a singular personal pronoun when he did it. One person said, I don't share my glory with no one else. But see, in the Old Testament, it's an assumption when you read a singular personal pronoun. And that's just we assume that that's one person when it's really one being. But then in the New Testament, the criteria shifts. And whenever they use singular personal pronouns, then all of a sudden, hey, we got the Trinity there. But when we apply it to the Old Testament, it don't work. You see, I'm just asking for consistency. And as Mr. White says over and over, inconsistency is a sure sign of a failed argument. Now, he said that in John 1 and 1, and I have more here with John 17, but I want to at least just hit them a little bit real quickly. He said in John 7 and John 1 and 1 that we have God the Father, God the Son. Did you hear it? Face to face. So in eternity, his words, not mine. In eternity, we've got God the Father and God the Son facing each other. Yet we're told you can't divide God. And yet they're facing one another. And no one knew a thing about it for 4,000 years. No one knew one thing. But God the Son, God the Father facing each other. I don't know what God the Holy Spirit's doing. But, but he's got the two persons in the Godhead facing each other. He asked in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, who is the me? And then he went on to say, when it says that uh, body have you prepared for me? He said, who is it? He said, this is the pre-incarnate. Really? Well, then let's keep reading. And in the next verse where it says that he had a God, he says, oh, God. Yet you can read Psalm 22 and 10. And it says that you have been my God, some messianical prophecy. And it says you have been my God from my mother's womb. Yet Mr. Mr. White tells us that's pre-incarnate. So it's pre-incarnate. And God, the son had a God in his pre-incarnate condition. Doesn't work. Um, Now, let me get very quickly to the the John 10 and 30. We hear a lot. From my honorable opponent, that because he used the plural, I, I and my father are one, and he used the plural verb esmen. And so Mr. White tells us that that's a plurality of persons, and, and, and that that would, you know, that that would be the normal understanding of a plural verb would be a plural subject. But I hope he applies that in Revelation 21 and 22. Because Revelation 21 and 22 denotes the father and the son, and it uses a singular verb. To describe the Father and the Son. So if a plural verb applied to the Father and the Son denotes a plurality of persons, I just want him to be consistent and use the same criteria in Revelation 21 and 22 when it speaks of God and the Lamb. And then it says, are its temple and, or is its temple and it is a singular verb applied to God and the Lamb. So I hope you'll deal with that. Now, in Isaiah, my opponent brought up Isaiah 9 and 6. Isaiah 9 and 6 is very interesting. Indeed. Isaiah 9 and 6 says that unto us a son is born and a child is given. Then it gives the attributes of the name. And it says, wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father. Now, he again derided me on the, on the dividing line and said, well, the, the definite article is not there. I know the definite article is not there, but the construction is definitive. I ask you again, we talk about natural readings. Who would read Isaiah 9 and 6 where it says Jesus is the eternal father, the, the, the mighty God, and say, well, he's second person in the Trinity. Absolutely no one whatsoever. I submit tonight that Trinitarianism is a forced interpretation and a gross misrepresentation of the text. Thank you so much for your time. God bless. Thank you for that, Roger. It's now time for our scheduled break. I'll pass over to uh, Craig Ireland to uh, give you the details. Thank you, Craig. Now, as we said before the break, the uh, two opponents will get one more round of rebuttals 
and that is where they speak independently and attack and defend their case from the other party. And then after that, you can imagine it's going to get very interesting because our two speakers will get the chance in the cross-examination to address each other directly. That's where my job starts to get hard as well. I can see we're building up quite an interesting clash and that's what a debate's all about, uh, getting the clash, having the two opinions very clearly defined so that you and I and all of us can see how they're going to interact. So, this round of rebuttals is seven minutes per speaker and I'll invite Dr James White to speak in his rebuttal for the affirmative side. That's when I can welcome. Seven minutes is a very, very short period of time, except for Mr. Perkins. While I'm up here, then it's a very long period of time, and his seven minutes for me as well. Let's jump immediately into John chapter 17. He accused me of inconsistency, and he said, well, uh, Mr. White, are you going to be consistent? Because in John 17:5, Jesus said, Father, glorify me together yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Isn't that the whole Jesus speaking? You're inconsistent. One little problem. Um, before the world was, was Jesus incarnate? Is it not our belief that the incarnation took place in time and that the human nature of Jesus was not eternal? So who's the only one who can be speaking this way? A divine person referring to a pre-incarnate time when he and the Father were in relationship with one another. That has not been touched. Have you noticed that, folks? The exegesis of my presentation has not yet been touched. And so I would suggest that if Mr. Perkins thinks that I'm being inconsistent on the basis of John 17:5, I'm just going to tell him he's dreaming. I'll just allow the Aussies in the audience to figure that one out. <clears throat> Isaiah 44:24 was cited. One of my favorite texts where, where, where Yahweh alone and by himself creates all things. And yet in the New Testament, the Father is involved in creation. The Son is involved in creation. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. All things are created by Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. So what must we do? We must see that the oneness of Isaiah 44, 24 is monotheism. And in light of the New Testament, we recognize the distinction of the persons. That's called the historic Christian doctrine of the Trinity. You don't throw out the one because of your insistence to say that the other involves some form of Unitarianism. We were told that Philippians 2 has nothing to do with an imaginary Trinity. We have yet to be given any exegesis of Philippians chapter 2 at all. Nothing. I'm expecting... Again, to speak to the Aussies in the audience, uh, Mr. Perkins, to grab his Bible and go, it's just the vibe of the thing. We need exegesis. We need something more than, well, it doesn't have anything to do with the Trinity. Okay. I spent five minutes illustrating the fact from the Greek text that this is a pre-incarnate individual speaking of pre-incarnate actions. And we get, well, it doesn't have anything to do with the Trinity. That is not how a debate is to be run. We were asked, well, Dr. White's cutting God into parts. He, he talked about one Yahweh raining fire from another Yahweh. How's that not two Yahwehs? Well, first of all, Yahweh is uh, unlimited and he is omnipresent. 
and he can take human form without ceasing to be omnipresent. And the fact of the matter is, I was just quoting Genesis 18. Yahweh rained fire and brimstone from Yahweh on Sodom and Gomorrah. The one Yahweh was walking with Abraham. You tell me what's going on there. To say, well, that, that just can't be because it, what, violates my tradition. Well, tonight we are examining traditions to see if they are actually valid. Uh, we said we didn't hear one thing about Dr. Vine from Dr. White. Well, Mr. Perkins wasn't listening very carefully because I directly addressed it. And I pointed out that Vine says predominantly or, or freak, I think the term was frequently. That means not always. And Mr. Perkins had misdefined the terms before. Whether he wants to admit that or not is up to him. It's not a, a conflict between me and anything that Vines was saying. Then he went again. Evidently, um, we, can, we can quote the Amplified Bible, published by the Lachman Foundation. And Mr. Perkins knows what the Amplified Bible means. It's teaching Unitarianism. I'm a critical consultant for the Lachman Foundation, and I tell you, it's not. Now, who has the authority to speak in that particular instance? The fact of the matter is the context is mediation. It is not talking about the Godhead or Unitarianism or anything of its kind. This is a misuse of the text in toto. We had just a few brief comments made about John chapter 17. And he, and he says, well, who's this one true God? Well, there's only one true God. And if the son, the incarnate son is going to address the father, what's he going to address him as? Uh, one of many gods? Now all of a sudden we believe in polytheism? In no way, shape, or form. Jesus then goes on to say that it's eternal life to know the, the father and the son. And then he says that he was glorious in the presence of the father before the world was. We still have not received an exegesis of John chapter 17, verse 5, either. And then there was a brief mention of John chapter 10, but no answer to the question that was given. Who is it that says a body, when he comes into the world, a body you have prepared for me? Who's the me? And who's the one that prepared the body? If this is the son speaking to the father, he has to place this after the incarnation. Yet the whole point of the text is opposite to that. It shows, once again, idealized plans do not speak. Have you noticed we have not had a positive presentation yet this evening as to who Jesus really is? Well, he's the one, one God of the Old Testament incarnate. What does that mean? Well, he's the Father and he's the Son. But the Son is just a human being and the Son was not eternal. And so can a non-eternal Human nature that was once just a plan speak as the Jesus of the Bible speaks. That's the question that we have to ask. But unfortunately, given that Mr. Perkins now only has seven minutes, I don't think we're going to get an exegesis of Philippians 2, an exegesis of John 17:5, or an exegesis of John 1, 1 that will be able to adequately address the issues that have been raised but we can hope, because it's his turn next. Thank you for your attention. Let's welcome back Mr. Perkins to respond for his last seven minutes of rebuttals. Let's make him welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Glad to be back here tonight. <clears throat> um, 
Now, Mr. White has said to me tonight, just now, that in John 17, 5, that it is divine persons speaking prior to the incarnation. And then tells me I'm the one dreaming. And yet you don't find those divine, eternal persons in 70% of the Bible, and I'm the dreamer. Now, I'm not the dreamer, ladies and gentlemen. And I have Jesus of John 17, 5. I have Philippians 2 right here. I have John 1, 18. I have John 1, 1. I have tons of it right here. I just really, in the last one, didn't get a chance to get to it. When I started getting to it, my time was coming running up. Now, in Isaiah 44, 24, one singular person using singular personal, by the way, reflexive pronoun, I by myself created all things alone and by myself. One singular person says this using a singular personal pronoun, which is the same criteria that he uses to come up with his Trinity doctrine in the New Testament. He says, well, singular personal pronouns indicates singular persons. Well, let's just apply that to Isaiah 44 and 24. I created all things alone and by myself. And then he said the historic Christian doctrine of the Trinity has always understood that to mean thus and thus and that. No, the Trinitarian have always understood it to mean that. That presupposes that the Trinitarians are Christian, that they're Orthodox Christianity. And that's what he says over and over again, that the Orthodox Christian, no, Trinitarians believe that. So we need to define our terms very closely. He says that, uh, speaking of Yahweh in the one Yahweh rained fire from another Yahweh, he says that, well, that's because Yahweh is omnipresent. Well, I hope you remember that. When he starts telling us that one omnipresent person sent another omnipresent person, how can omnipresence be sent anywhere? I would like for him to define omnipresence at some point tonight. Omnipresence is not sent anywhere, ladies and gentlemen. Omnipresence is already there. So he has three divine persons, each of whom one, each of whom are not the other. One's not the other. God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. Each are omnipresent. No one knew a thing about it for 4,000 years, 70% of the Bible, and I'm the Joseph doing the dreaming. I'm not the dreamer, ladies and gentlemen. Now, he says that the context of Galatians 3.20 is mediation. I'm, oh, oh, of course, wonder of wonders. I'm just abusing it again. I'm just misusing another source. Every time I quote a source, he's abusing it. But, but yet he can quote 75 lexicons in his books, 75 sources, in the same manner that I quote them. I'm quoting them just like he quotes them. I'm quoting the same ones. And I've got Moulton and Milligan sitting right there that he abused. And I'll gladly, you just come see me after this, I'll gladly show you his quotation where he has it in quotes that we need to go look up Moulton and Milligan on page so-and-so that it says this. And you go look it up. I went and looked it up. It doesn't say one thing about that. And he tells me I'm the one abusing the lexicons. Um, now, in fact, he tells us that the primary issues is did the, divine, did the Son exist as a divine person prior to the incarnation? So Mr. White is the authoritarian on what is the primary issue and what's not. See, he sets the pattern of what's the primary issue and what's not. We're all supposed to bow down to that. Well, I'll tell you what's the, what the primary issue is. The primary issue is, is there a three-minded God that no one knew existed for 4,000 years? Now, that's not a primary issue. I don't know what is. In fact, just in case I am accused of misrepresenting him, um, and Mr. White says there's no way that we can separate and we can uh, flesh out. The, he says there's no way you can separate the being of God. Uh, Mr. Soundman, would you play that track for me? Soundbite number one, please. This is Mr. White's own statement. Two different subjects being addressed. And you might say, well, why would John do that to us? Why would John switch back and forth? Well, it's part of the, the fact that he's asserting that if you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. There is no way to separate it up. Really? 
No way to separate the Father from the Son. Hold on, you getting ahead of me. No way to separate the Father from the Son, ladies and gentlemen. That's what Mr. White just said. Okay, sound bite number two, please. Two different subjects being impressed. Number two. That's just number one. That's the first one. Now play the second one, please. I'll quote it. I'll quote it. (laughs) On his oneness podcast in a segment three around the eight minute mark, he says this. The father and son are separate divine persons. And I have that right over there. Yeah, he just told us nobody separate them out. But then he turns around and says they're separate divine persons. On page 170 of the Forgotten Trinity, Mr. White says he's trying to avoid the idea of separate individuals. Yet that third clip up there, Mr. White says the son is an individual who existed from eternity, eternally with the Father. On his ancient heresies, 26-25 mark, he says the Father and Son are distinguishable individuals. So we got God the Father who's an individual, God the Son who's an individual, God the Holy Spirit who's an individual. Each is fully God, but one is not the other. Each has their own separate center of consciousness. Each has their own mind. He said uh, two weeks ago, October 7th, I think it was, that I assume that they only have one center of consciousness and there's only one center of consciousness in God, which means he holds to more than one center of consciousness in God. And you're going to tell me you've got one God still? Absolutely not. It is conceptual tritheism. Now, um, ladies and gentlemen, of course, my, I, don't, I don't have the time here, but I, I will deal with Philippians 2 in the cross-examination. And I feel like it's going to come up. But uh, he says, um, I'll, I'll just tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, on page 171 of his book, Mr. White says, The Father is not the Son, nor is the Son the Holy Spirit. Each are fully and completely God. So God the Father is not God the Son, who is not God the Holy Spirit. Each are fully God. Each are divine individuals. None of the 23,145 verses of the Old Testament know this. God's Old Testament covenant people never knew one thing about a three-minded God. When we put my opponent's statements together, we're told that God the Father is one separate individual, who is not God the Son, who is one sep- another separate individual, who is not God the Holy Spirit, who is another separate individual. Apparently, each divine individual individual can communicate with each other as human beings. None of God's people knew about this for 7,000 years. Then when we turn to the New Testament, we have the testimony of the New Testament writers that just said Jesus is the same one God we've been reading about the whole time manifest in the flesh. That is who Jesus is. He is God manifest in the flesh, not a second of three divine persons that no one knew existed. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've now heard the substantive arguments from the affirmative and the negative, and our two speakers have had a chance to formally defend their position and attack one another in the relative safety of the wooden podium in the front. I think you'll understand and feel that at this point it's important for us to get our our speakers talking to one another. We seem to have come to a point in the debate where the affirmative is arguing that truth can be discovered by a close um, exegesis of the New Testament with knowledge of New Testament grammar and lexicon. 
The negative team is arguing that the truth can be found in 4,000 years of Hebrew um, revelation and all of those personal pronouns. Both teams have said these two positions very clearly and now we know where they both stand. This is where it gets interesting. We are about to enter two rounds of cross-examination. In the first round, each speaker will have 15 minutes. In the second round, each speaker will have 10 minutes. And here's how it will work. Um, Firstly, our affirmative, Dr. White, will be cross-examining our negative speaker. And the purpose of cross-examination is to present questions and challenges relating to specific points that have been raised already. Neither speaker can introduce new arguments and here's how the the, uh, cross-examination round works. The cross-examiner has 30 seconds and must form a question. If in that 30 seconds the speaker doesn't form a question, I will intervene and ask them to form a question. The respondent then has two minutes to answer the question. And uh, gentlemen, it must be about points that are already raised and it must be a question and answer format. So, the two gentlemen are going to stay seated with their microphones on and for the first 15 minutes, Dr. White will be addressing cross-examination questions to Mr. Perkins. Dr. White, you may begin. 15. All right, thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Perkins, could you please tell us who is performing the actions of the verbs hegesata uh, and ekenosin in Philippians 2, 6 through 7 and when they were performed? Gladly. Um, Philippians 2, 5 through 9, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, the name of the historical Messiah, who, the, the referring back to Christ Jesus, although he, who, the Christ Jesus, existed which is a present active participle, in the form of God, nothing there about second individual, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Who is that referring back to is the Messiah, sir. Based upon the words Christ Jesus, which Paul used everywhere, is always referring to the historical Messiah that walked this earth. Um, I asked for two verbs, hegesata, uh, in verse 6, and a kenosin in verse 7. The term means to empty, literally. Um, could you please tell, tell me, are you saying that the historical Messiah did not consider the equality he had with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself? Could you explain when this happened, please? Well, I just answered that, but I'll do it again. It was the historical Messiah who walked this earth, though he was in the form of God. He did not, as a NASB footnote says here, he laid aside his divine privileges. He did not retain and rightfully grasp a hold of his divine prerogatives as being in the form of God. The word morphe in form is defined by lexicographers as a human figure, as a body, as the external visage, there. So I would say that you would be the one that would have the problem there. I'm still not getting an answer. Uh, when, answer did the action, when did the action of Kenao in verse 7 take place? If you're saying it's during the human ministry, when during the human ministry of Jesus? As a man, I don't think you can nail down and say exactly what millisecond did he actually do this. This is describing the incarnation. God walking this earth as a man. I mean, I, if you want to 
millisecond, I can't give you the exact millisecond when, when this is describing the human life of Jesus Christ. So you just said it's describing the incarnation, which is what I said. But I thought you just said this is actually describing Jesus' human ministry. Well, I, I don't think you can divorce the incarnation from his human ministry. What is the incarnation but God becoming flesh? Oh, well, you're asking the question. What could you please explain to us how Jesus, the Messiah, was equal to God if he was God? What does it mean to be equal with God? Because this is, this is what he does not consider something to be held on to. How was the human Jesus equal with God? Because he was God in his human existence. He was God in flesh. Okay. He, so how would this be an example then of humility? You're, are, are you saying that God did not give consideration to being equal with God? Jesus is God in the flesh, sir. Though you're asking the question, I do not understand what kind of a thing it would be for Paul to tell us to imitate something that God did in heaven. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever for Paul to say, well, now you need to do what God did in heaven. Makes no sense. But what does make sense is when he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. That's how it's an exor- uh, uh, exhortation to, to humility. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, and he is our example as God in the flesh, but not as a second divine person in the Trinity. Well, I know that's your position, but I haven't gotten an answer yet for what it means for the text to say that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, what does that, how is that related to his humility if he did not lay that aside? In the first place, you're getting an answer. You're just not, just not getting the answer that you want, but it's still an answer. The answer is, again, God, is, Jesus is God in the flesh. Paul is not telling us to imitate something that God did in heaven prior in eternity, what kind of thing would that be? But he's telling us to imitate the Messiah who was our example. So that's the answer. Could you explain the use of the reflexive pronoun at the beginning of verse 7? Hey, he emptied himself. Who is the specific subject of the verb who does this act of emptying? Christ Jesus, who uh, is the Messiah. Himself, who although he... Referring back to Christ, Jesus existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The reflexive pronoun is still talking about the Messiah. It has not flip-flopped from the Messiah all the way back to eternity past within two verses. Okay, so what was involved in the Messiah emptying himself that would be related to equality with God? How did Jesus do that? In the sense that he was God. He was God in the flesh, and he rightfully had the divine prerogatives, yet he laid them aside, and that is a perfect example of humility. So the following words, taking the form of a servant, really aren't filling out what the emptying actually was? The emptying is in the sense that he added humanity to himself. He, became, he was a man who walked this earth, but yet he was still in the form of God. I mean, I don't know how many times I have to say this, Mr. Watt. But you just said adding humanity to himself, that takes mm-hmm. us back to the actual incarnation, which would mean the consideration of verse 6 had to be before the incarnation. 
According Logical. to that, according to your position there, then you would have independent thought processes from God the Son in eternity past, which would necessitate three minds in God. But on a simple Greek grammatical basis, can you dispute that the verb of hegesata takes place before ekenosin, and in light of what you just said, forces you to believe that there is an action on the part of the Messiah before his incarnation? Before his incarnation. I am not saying before his incarnation. You all. I, I don't understand the question. Okay. You just said that. Can you elaborate, em- please? Okay. You just said that the emptying of verse 7 mm-hmm. referred to the incarnation. But hegesata, by any translation of the language, has to come before the emptying. So you have a divine person not considering equality he had with God something to be grasped prior to the incarnation. How is that not a vindication of my exegesis? Because you asked me about the reflexive pronouns, who they refer back to. I'm saying the whole pronouns, everything is referring to the Messiah and not all of a sudden flip-flopping and going back to eternity past within two verses. The whole context is that earthly Messiah who was God in the flesh. In John chapter 17, verse 5, could you please explain to us who is speaking when the temporal phrase uh, pra uh, tutan kasman is used before the world was? Who, who is speaking about this time period? As you said on your podcast, uh, section 2, 140, when Jesus speaks, it is the entire person who is speaking, not just a part. I'm asking, I, would agree. I'm asking, I would just ask you to be consistent on that point. Okay, I'm just asking from your perspective, not, not my perspective, from your perspective, exegetically, who is speaking about this time period before the world was? The Son. Did the Son exist before the world was? Yes, as the Logos. And is the Logos a divine person? Not in the sense that you think. No. Because I know where you're going. And the answer is no. Then what is the, then what is, <laughs> then what is the Logos in your understanding uh, of John 17.5? Why don't we forget my understanding and let's let the lexicographers define that. The lexicographers and even you yourself, sir, I have the article right here, define the Logos as the thought and as the plan and the concept in the mind of God. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But he wasn't only the thought and the plan. He was that self-same God manifest in the flesh. So this was a plan that is speaking and speaking of the time when the plan existed Para se auto and para soy, so a plan knows of its pre-existence? The human being who is God in the flesh prayed and he said, Now, Father, glorify me with the glory I had. Of course, you're asking the question, so I can't ask you the question. But you, by your own admission, say that when Jesus speaks, it is the entire person speaking. So I would hope you'll be consistent right here and apply your same hermeneutic, sir, to this right here. Uh, It is still the entire person speaking. Or you're stripping him of his humanity right here. 
Uh, Mr. Perkins, do you recognize that the statement you've quoted to me three times had a particular context that completely removes it from relevance to what we're talking about? In, in your understanding, but you don't set the understanding. Yeah, I'm the one who said the words. Here's, here's, uh, let, let, me, let me try to focus once again. Are you saying that the human nature of Jesus is, is the Father speaking in John 17:5? I just told you, sir, for the second time, I'll try it again. The, Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. The Son is speaking. I just told you that. Okay, so since Pater, the Father, is the direct object, mm -hmm. this is someone else praying to Pater, right? Not a problem whatsoever. And in John 8 and 40, he defined who that was. Okay, then, so he defined who that was prior to John 17, 5. Well, I don't just take John 17, 5 out of an isolated vacuum and say, see, it, can't, it has to mean this, and we have to negate the rest of what Jesus said. I take it all together, sir. Okay, so who is the person who was by the Father's side in eternity? In the first place, it doesn't say side, and I would argue omnipresence does not have a side. It is metaphorical, sir. All right. So Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, and it was the human being who was praying here. Who is God in the flesh? So the human being was para theato, was by the side of the Father before time was. We'll try it again. The omnipresence does not have a side in the first place. Okay, so you, okay, so the human being, yes, the human being is praying here. I don't see why there's a problem with that whatsoever. But what is a problem is God the Son praying to God the Father with independent thought processes in eternity past that no one knew existed. That's the problem. Okay, since you don't like the word beside, could you please translate for us para theato yourself? Well, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I wouldn't translate it as side. What would you translate it as? Well, I'm not a translator, and you know that. Well, if you... If you if have you, to if, be a translator to be saved, I'd say we're all in trouble. Okay, para seauto, you know what the preposition means. Right. We are not talking about spatially, we are talking about relationship. And so, mm -hmm. was it the human nature that was para seauto and para soy? Let me give you some lexicographers that you like to quote definitions. Para in the dative case is not at all necessitating at the side of. Lou Nida, whom you quote all the time, says that para in the dative case includes in the opinion of and in the judgment of. Thayer, page 477, whom you also quote, says that para with the dative includes metaphorically in his mind. See John 17 and 5. So there's your answer. So... Once again, I will ask for the last time, please. Was it a human nature that was para theato and para soy? What does it mean for Jesus to say, glorify me with the glory which I had para theato before the world was? The context is Calvary. He was going to Calvary. Now, Father, the hour is come, verse 1. I don't just rip verse 5 out of its context and ignore the rest of them. I put it all together. He says, now the hour is come. The hour was Calvary. Then he says in verse 3, the Father is the only true God. And then he says, now glorify thou me with the glory I had, including the man, or else you're stripping Jesus of his humanity, sir. And he's only speaking in, according to his divinity, independent of his humanity, which is the very thing you charge me with. So I'm just asking you to be consistent. It was the man who was praying. He was God manifest in the flesh. I don't see a problem whatsoever with it. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, we are told that by him, 
all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, etc., etc. Could you please explain how, since this is about the Son, He is the creator of all things, if He did not come into existence until His birth in Bethlehem? Well, sure, very, very well. Um, Spiros Odiades, the complete word dictionary, speaking of these very passages, says that in this construction, the ah in the genitive case may also refer to the first cause. When the author does anything through himself instead of another, then he says, see Colossians 1 and 16. Verse 16 says, for by him all things were created. Uh, who is the by him? It, it grammatically points back to verse 15, which says he is the image of the invisible God. The word image is a cone. Bowers, page 222, translates this as a man, a human figure. See Colossians 1 and 15. That's my answer. Thank you, gentlemen. Let's give him a round of applause for that round. And now the tables will be turned and uh, Mr. Roger Perkins will be cross-examining our affirmative um, speaker, Dr. James White. You may begin when you're ready, Mr. Perkins. Mr. White, you said on October the 7th, dividing line, that Perkins, Mr. Perkins assumes that there's only one center of consciousness in God because I am a supposed Unitarian. Um, now, I would ask you, does each divine individual in the Trinity possess their own separate mind or center of consciousness apart from the other two divine persons? That's how they recognize each other and interact with each other. It is historic Christian doctrine to believe that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinguishable divine persons fully sharing the one being that is God. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you one more time. Are you comfortable then saying that the historic doctrine, Christian doctrine of the Trinity, worships a three-minded God? No, uh, that is a misrepresentation because it uses human language to describe what we're talking about. Uh, you like to use that terminology and talk about three-minded God. Clearly, the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Therefore, there must be centers of consciousness to which love is a meaningful attribute for those words to be true. So whatever terminology you wish to use, the biblical teaching is that before creation was, the Son and the Father were in relationship with one another. So then you are comfortable saying that each divine individual has their own center of consciousness. Yes, of course. Separate, separate centers of consciousness in God. Well, that's, you know, that's how persons relate to one another and speak to one another. So, yes. you, so you're okay saying their separate individuals have centers of consciousness, Well, right? again, uh, I have, uh, as my book in front of you clearly indicates, reading human language into the existence of God can be very, very difficult, and we must be very, very careful not to transfer the idea that would lead to the very error you represent, and that is tritheism that you are accusing us of. Um, so when we talk about divine persons... I clearly define what those persons are. All right. So, so I wouldn't, if you don't want to say mind, that's fine. You want to say centers of consciousness. And so I am asking, you are comfortable saying that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit each have separate minds or centers of consciousness. I've affirmed that three times now. All right. Uh, on the dividing line, you said that omnipresence applies to the being of God, but Mr. Perkins applies it to the persons of the Trinity. Um, are you denying that each divine person in the Trinity is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent? 
I am saying that each of the divine persons shares the being of God that is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and so on and so forth, and hence can exercise their participation in different ways, as clearly the Son alone has exercised the ability to become incarnate. All right. Can you define omnipresence for me, according uh, to your understanding? Well, omnipresence is God's uh, ability to have knowledge of and presence in all of his creation. So would you define it as God is everywhere at one time? Um, Omni, that's, omnipresent? That's, uh, that has to be distinguished. Pantheism and panentheism are not Christian beliefs. Uh, God is not uh, intimately connected to the universe in a way of dependence or interpenetration. Uh, omnipresence must be differentiated from the concept uh, that uh, the pagans had so that God's knowledge and presence is available in all of his creation without him actually being uh, forced to in some way, shape, or form be dependent upon creation. So then you would say that each divine person is omnipresent in the Trinity, right? Each divine person participates in the divine being because we do differentiate between being and person as we all do, I believe, including yourself. And the being of God is omnipresent in the sense I just defined it. The being of God is omnipresent. So yes. Does that, or the, sorry, I just need an answer. Are the divine persons omnipresent? As they participate in the divine being. So they are omnipresent. As they participate in the divine being. All right, we'll just move on. I'm not getting an answer. Was that a question? <clears throat> How many persons, sir, are naturally implied when Yahweh spoke to Moses with one mouth? How many persons are implied? Uh, it's not a question of persons. That was not a part of the revelation at that time. It's a question of how many gods are implied. All that revelation in the Old Testament shows us the divine truth, which I have defended many times, of monotheism. There is one God, Yahweh. So all the anthropomorphical language that God applied to himself under the Old Testament, uh, my mouth, my face, my hand, does that naturally imply one person, sir? Does that naturally imply one person? No more than the fact he has feathers implies he's a chicken. He has, okay, even feathers. How many chickens we got? Uh, well, there's only one God, so that's true. How many, one chicken person would that be? One chicken You brought person. it up, not me. Uh, <laughs> well, the, the reality is that uh, one of us assumes Unitarianism and one of us does not in light of the full revelation of Scripture. There is one God, Yahweh. That's what all the monotheism of the Old Testament is all about. All right, so then based upon that answer, why do singular personal pronouns in the New Testament equal one divine singular person, but 9,000 singular personal pronouns in the Old Testament, the criteria shift to beinghood? Uh, there is no shift of criteria at all because you are ignoring, as you so often do, the context of them. When we look at John 17, which is what you drew my statement from, um, I'm sorry, I believe actually it was originally John 10, but John 17 is a true example as well. You have direct interaction between the Father and the Son, and you have the use of the direct address. You, Father, I, we did this, we are one. You have that kind of use of personal pronouns in direct conversation. There is no parallel found anywhere in the Old Testament where God is addressing some other God or something like that in the way that you have the New Testament using those, those personal pronouns. So I have not used a different standard. I'm simply allowing the text to exist in the context in which they're found in the Bible. All right, so I'm asking you, when you, you got up there and said that the God the Father, God the Son, they use personal pronouns. 
indicating that each are a person, right? No, no. I said they use personal pronouns in dialogue with each other. Which means each is a person, right? Yes. Based upon in light pronouns. of their interaction with one another, not merely the use of a personal pronoun. Yahweh can use singular personal pronouns in the Old Testament because the revelation of the Father, Son, and Spirit takes place between the covenants. He uses personal singular pronouns because he is proving that there is one God. That is not parallel to where you have one divine person speaking of the time before world the world was being glorified in the presence of of the other. There is no parallel to that anywhere in the Old Testament. And unless you're going to say, well, because of what I believe about the Old Testament, the New Testament can't say these things. That's the only type of argument you can have, and that seems seemingly is the argument we're getting here. So, so there's no parallel to that in the Old Testament. So are you saying that there was no interaction between God the Father and God the Son in the Old Testament? Not in the sense of direct communication. I certainly was see I certainly see uh, interaction from New Testament eyes. Uh, that is because John tells me in John 12:41 that the person who was seen on the throne in Isaiah 6 was actually Jesus. Okay, so I, in light of that, if I had asked Isaiah, who did you see? He would have said Yahweh. In light of the New Testament revelation, John tells me he saw Jesus. Now, again, the Jew would reject that. And if we are to take your standard of hermeneutics, he would have a solid basis for doing that. But I believe the New Testament gives us further revelation. And with that revelation, we can look back into the Old Testament and we can see the sun in Isaiah 53. We can see the sun in Isaiah 9:6. We can see the sun in these places in light of the fuller revelation that comes with the incarnation and the outpouring of the Spirit of God. All right. Um, you have said... And I have an answer to that, but I have to move on. You have said that in the Pauline corpus, Hokurios usually represents Jesus, and Hopanuma usually represents the Holy Spirit. And 2 Corinthians 3.17, where it says Hokurios is Hopanuma, the Lord is the Spirit. Why, doesn't there, why isn't there a consistency in this? Why doesn't this mean Jesus is the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, I'm glad you said, uh, quoted me correctly, that I said normatively, because I also give the information when I make that statement that there are times, for example, where hafeos, which is used of the Father, is actually used of the Son. So while these are uh, normative uses, they are not consistent and always uh, to be found in that way. The background of 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And then uh, verse, uh, at the end of verse 18, just as from the Lord, the Spirit, takes us back to the book of Exodus. And if you will simply look at the uh, context of that particular uh, text from Exodus, I believe it is, uh, looking for it here, I think it's Exodus 34, I'd have to uh, grab it again. But you will discover that it has to do with Moses entering into the presence of Yahweh and the veil that was placed over his face. And Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is that just as there, there was a veil that was a part of covering Moses' face, so too in Paul's ministry there is a veil over people's hearts until they turn to the Lord, that is, the Spirit. It's the Spirit that gives enlightenment. It's the Spirit that gives an understanding of who Jesus really is. That's what gives liberty. And hence verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And so he's making a connection between that Old Testament veiling and the approaching of 
of Yahweh, and now his greater ministry, which has greater glory, and it's the Lord, the Spirit, that must open the eyes of those people, just as he had veiled the hearts of those in the days of Moses. Well, I hope I'll have that long to respond, as you've had to respond to that. I don't believe I went over two minutes, did I? Thank you very much. I believe you were. Thank you very much. Now, and if a plural verb in John 10.30 indicates plural divine persons, such as Father and the Son, then why is it in Revelation 21 and 22, a singular verb for the Father and Son, why doesn't that singular verb indicate singular persons? Uh, you are mistranslating the text. It says, Hagar kurias hatheas hapantokrator naas altes estin kai ta arnion. There is no parallel syntactically between uh, John 10.30, where it says, I and the Father, we are one, and the use here, because Eston is literally saying, for the Lord, the God Almighty, is its temple and the Son. Kaita Arnion is a phrase that comes after the verb, and hence, uh, not only is Arnion a neuter, and hence the, the, the verb could be singular with a neuter anyways, but the point is that it is an added phrase, and hence is not syntactically parallel to John chapter 10, verse 30. So there is no value in uh, trying to make that assertion. So in other words, we can't trust the translations that we have, right? Because you're saying they're all mistranslated. I, uh, did I say no, you didn't anything say that, but you said all mistranslated. I asked you, if a, why does a plural verb in John 10, 30, in reference to the Father and the Son, necessitate? plural persons, but a singular verb in Revelation 21-22 as applied to the Father and Son doesn't mean plural Because persons. Bible translators recognize differences in context and usage, sir. And there is a difference in the grammar and syntax of those two passages. Do you understand? I'm sorry, I cannot ask that question. Ask questions. Yep. Mr. Perkins, you still have three minutes if you want to cross-examine further. Okay, yeah, very good. Um, according to you, sir, it's it's an assumption to say that a singular personal pronoun in the Old Testament is one person when it's really one being. Then why is it not an assumption to say that a singular personal pronoun in the New Testament equals one being instead of one, excuse me, equals one person instead of one being? Because, as I've explained a number of times already, I put that in a particular context of John chapter 17, where the one singular person is addressing another singular person using direct address and placing their conversation and their existence in the pre-existence where they were both glorious. And so I have never, ever said that simply using a singular personal pronoun makes you divine. Paul did it all the time. I don't worship Paul. There is a context to John 17.5. There is a context to John 1.1 that clearly indicates not only the time frame that we're dealing with, but also the individuals that we're dealing with and their relationship to one another. Paul did all the time. He used singular personal pronouns. How many persons was Paul? One. Thank you. Why do you appeal to the Amplified Bible in Colossians 2 and 9 and then reject the same translation in Galatians 3.20 when it says God is one person? I have never rejected the translation. I gave you its proper understanding. The context is mediation. It is not Unitarianism. He is talking about the two sides in the mediation and the need for a mediator in between. It is an absolute misrepresentation of the intentions, the translators, the Amplified Bible to read that as being... Anything close to Unitarianism, and I say that as a critical consultant with the Lachlan Foundation that publishes the translation that you are misusing and abusing, sir. So how many uh, persons does it say, sir? How many persons does the text say? In the context 
of mediation between parties. It's saying God is one party. He's one side of it. It is in no way, shape, or form addressing the issue of Unitarianism. There is nothing about the Godhead in this discussion whatsoever. Regardless, does it say that God is one person? Does the Amplify say God is one person? In I mean, you're giving me your the theology. Context, uh, again, if you, if you want to argue about this, I, I, I don't see what, what's going to be accomplished. It says one person in a context. I, I know what the translators meant. You do not. You're misusing and abusing the source. Of course. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right, let's give them a round of applause while they catch their breath, ladies and gentlemen. Now, gentlemen, I'd, I'd like to request that we move on from the point of who's the critical translator of which source and stick to the main arguments of the debate and the implications of the nature of God. Um, and in that, I will ask them now to begin their second round of cross-examination. This round is slightly shorter. Uh, it's 10 minutes per person. And once again, we'll start with our affirmative speaker, cross-examining our negative speaker. You may begin when you're ready, Dr. White. Thank you. I'd like to pick up exactly where I left off in uh, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, and I would again encourage uh, the people in the audience to follow along as well if we, if we could. Colossians chapter 1. When I asked you, uh, who is it who created all things, in the heavens and the earth, etc., etc., your response was to talk about dia with the dative. Is it your understanding that John, uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 1.16 begins with dia? Is that your understanding? Because your answer was, you, you started talking about dia. Well, I, thought, I didn't know you were asking. I thought you were still making a statement, so I didn't answer. So can, you, can you ask me that one more time? Sure. I had asked, I think it's extremely important, because en auto, by him, were created tapanta, all things in heaven and upon the earth, visible, invisible, so on and so forth. So, I asked in verse 16, who is it that created these things? And your answer was all about dia. Now, dia appears at the end of the verse, but it doesn't appear at the beginning. So, could you please explain, again, without referring to dia, who was it that created tapanta? If this is the sun... How did the Son create all things when he didn't come into existence until his birth in Bethlehem? Gladly. And verse 15, it says, And he is the image, I define for you image, according to Bauer of Greek-English lexicon, it says this is a human figure. It's not the answer you want, but it's an answer. And verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him... Who is, well, you're asking, asking the question, but the him is the visible image of the invisible God, which the visible image did not exist in pre-existence. And Bowers translates this word image as a human figure. See Colossians 1 and 15. So the answer to that would be this verses, these passages are referring to the preeminence of the son, not a second divine person that no one knew existed for 4000 years. So the preeminence of the son created all things. The preeminence of the son, I don't see a problem there. How could, sure. Who specifically is referred to by the third word of verse 16, alto? He, the visible image of the invisible God. Verse 16 is hinged upon verse 15, who defines him. Can, can I finish answering, sir? 
as to who defines him as the human figure in the image. Then verse 16 then explains and expounds upon verse 15. Who is God the, contradicts. Who is the prototokos pastes tisaos, the firstborn of all creation? Jesus. Is that not the direct antecedent of for by him? The, for by him, yes. So by Jesus, all things were created. Yes. In the heavens and on earth. Yes, I, I, don't, I don't see the problem. What? Okay, and this human nature came into existence at a later point? Verse 15, I'll try this again, sir. Verse 16, it's hinged upon verse 15. You cannot strip verse 16 out of verse 15. It starts by saying, for, by, him. The him there relates back to verse 15, who was the visible image, which Bowers, and I have many other lexicons here, define as a human being. You're arguing with the lexicons, the same ones that you quote in your book, and not me. I didn't write it. I'm just quoting it. Okay, um... Could you explain what the lexicons tell you about the invisible God? Who is the image of the invisible God? Who is the image of the invisible God? That's Jesus the first. Is the, who is the image of the invisible God? Jesus Christ. Yes, he is God. But verse 15 is saying that he is something other than the invisible God. Don't you see that? Verse 15 is saying he is, yes, he is the human figure, the human God manifest in the flesh. And so that human figure is the one by whom all things were created. Yes, in the preeminence and in the plan and forethought of God. In the plan and forethought of God. So the alto is actually a plan and forethought, not a person. The alto, I never said that, you're placing words into my mouth. That plan was the Messiah who would compose. Yes, that plan was a person. Now, in verse 16, we'll try this again. It says, for in him, sir, the him is referring back to verse 15. You have not dealt with what the lexicons say, that he was the human figure, the image of the invisible God. The human figure, according to your construct, you now have a, a human being in pre-existence. Uh, that's what I'm trying to find out from you. So, all things were created in heaven and earth, and all things are through him and for him, and in him all things hold, he is before all things. So, going down to verse 17, if you make this the, is this the human nature, or is this a plan because this is all this is all before creation itself. Is this a plan? Was 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 the human nature a plan? The first place we don't say human nature. That's a straw man. We say the human being, the full God and the full man, as you say yourself, without mixture. So so what you throw at me throws right back at you. Now all the he's and the hymns, all the pronouns in verse sixteen, verse seventeen, verse eighteen, all relate back to verse fifteen. They were successive. They all begin by four by him, relating back to who Bowers defines as the human figure. So now, based upon your understanding, you're saying it's preexistence. Bowers defines image a cone as the human figure, and it says, "See Colossians one fifteen." So I'm not abusing the lexicon. So. Jesus being the icon of the invisible God means that this plan of Jesus coming into existence pre-existed and was the mechanism of creation? 
Again, you are clouding the issue and not clarifying the issue. All I'm doing is telling you what the lexicons say, sir. You're not dealing with them. You're just saying, so that means this and that means this. I'm just quoting you the same lexicons that you quote, sir, in your book. Are lexicons the final theological authority for you, Mr. Perkins? Not one bit, but you need to remember that when you quote 75 of them in your book, sir. And did I ever once in the citations of those lexicons... Make them the final authority in the translation or interpretation of any text. So why would you, you're asking the question? But I would rhetorically ask. Might get away with that one. I would rhetorically ask why the. No, you can't rhetorically ask. I try. Answer your position, and you can answer within that. The, so the question. You can take this off my time. So the question was: Did you ever say what? That that's okay. I, I think I think I've, I've, I've made. No, okay. I, I, um, you've never said that they were the final authority, and neither have I. We're done? All right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Give them a round of applause while we catch our breath. Now, in a moment, we're going to have the final cross-examination round from Mr. Perkins, um, after which we will have closing statements from both sides. um, And then, if we have time, (coughs) we've got our questions from the audience at the end. So, now I'd like to invite uh, Roger Perkins for his last cross-examination of our affirmative speaker, Dr. White. Begin when you're ready. Mr. White, in Isaiah 44 and 24, God says he created all things in earth all alone and by myself using singular personal pronouns. Which divine person is speaking in this passage? Uh, It doesn't identify the divine person speaking in the passage because as the rest of the Bible tells us, all the divine persons were involved in creation. So this is a tremendous text that I use with Mormons all the time to demonstrate to them that their belief in tritheism is wrong and that the biblical doctrine of the Trinity is true because Yahweh says, stretching out the heavens by myself, spreading out the earth all alone, and yet we come to the New Testament and we just saw in Colossians 1 that the meaningful reading of the text is this is the Son, and we also see in Hebrews that it's the Father is the one who's created all things, and, and the Spirit of God is the one who hovers over the face of the water. So we have three divine persons involved in creation, and yet all are identified as Yahweh, the beautiful consistency of the Scripture to the identity of Yahweh and to the fact that Yahweh is tripersonal. So if, if I said, just in the normal construction, that I created this microphone all alone and all by myself, did it all by myself, how many persons would that naturally imply? Well, since you're a human being, and it is natural for human beings, since they are limited in their beings to be shared by only one person, it would imply one person because human beings are that way. They're created and they're finite. The problem with the question is God's being is not finite, and therefore the question is, does the Bible reveal to us that more than one person shares that being? Is there any biblical distinction between being and personhood? Uh, Certainly. Can you give one? Well, certainly. Uh, The fact that we can speak of mankind generically and speak of individuals personally, and that we can make generic statements about mankind in general, but then make exceptions and speak about persons, demonstrates that all the biblical writers function on the very same foundation that you and I function on every day. Every day, you and I know that we are human beings, but we also know that we are not all other human beings. We recognize the concept of humanity, and yet we recognize that we as individuals are personal. I have a human, I am a human being, but my being is shared only by one person. In fact, if more than one person shared my being, they'd put me in one of those funny places with a nice, comfy, you know, jacket that I wear. So that's unusual for the human being, but remember, the difference is God's being is not limited. 
uh, it is infinite and is shared by three divine persons. So I see a category distinction. I, I'm exactly the answer I was hoping you would give. So you give that answer all the time. So are you then saying then that the individuals, human individuals, are as radically separated as the persons in the Trinity since you give that analogy all the time? No, I, I, so expect, not. I expect people to understand the context in which I've given it and interpret me in light of the words and the context that I provide. Is that not a triphonistical analogy, sir? Please, I'm sorry? Please, to finish his answer before you ask anyone. Thank you. I didn't hear what you were asking because you were speaking while I was. What was your question? Is that not a tritheistical analogy that you're giving? I don't know what a tritheistical analogy is. You don't know what a tritheist is. is, sir? I don't know what tritheistical is. Do you know what an, an analogy is, sir? I certainly do. Do you know what a tritheist analogy would be? Uh, if you're saying is it an analogy that leads to tritheism, no, of course it doesn't. Because I emphasize, I think very clearly, that the being of God is infinite and unlimited and therefore can be shared by three persons. I emphasized in my opening statement that God's being cannot be divided into thirds, fourths, fifths, tenths, or anything else. God's being is simple and undivided, and each of the divine persons share in that divine being fully. So, no, it is not a tritheistical analogy. Well, I would disagree, but you say that you can't, you can't divide a God, but then you've told us that Yahweh walking on earth rained down fire from one, another Yahweh in heaven. How many Yahwehs is that, sir? Uh, there is one Yahweh who is unlimited in time and space and therefore is free to take on a... Uh, the, uh, theophany if he chooses to do so because I believe Genesis it says Yahweh walked with Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. That's the biblical text. I accept the biblical text. I think this is a good illustration of the fact that in reality you have a tradition that you force upon the biblical text and even your assertions that the Old Testament is your foundation you don't really believe that when there are indications of plurality right there in the text in front of you. So how is it that I have traditions that are unbiblical yet you worship a three-minded God that no one knew existed and yet I'm the one with the tradition is that not unbiblical tradition, sir? Is is that a meaningful question? I'm, I'm not well, really sure how to answer that because, you I, know because I think I, I think I just I think Gentlemen, I, let's move on to the next question, please. It's just getting a bit personal. Okay. Um, since we both agree, sir, that the Godhead issue is connected to baptism, as per uh, Matthew 28:19, what would you say the name of the Son is in Matthew 28:19? Well, there is one name that is given in uh, Matthew 28:19. even though I don't recall this having ever been brought up in, uh, in the debate before. Well, I can withdraw the statement. I'll allow the question. Um, okay. Uh, there is one name that is given. We are baptized into the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, in the rest of the book of Acts, we are told that people were experienced Christian baptism, baptism in the name of Jesus. Uh, I do not believe, however, that that means that there was a specific formula given in the book of Acts where it says they were only baptized in the name of Jesus. The specific formula is given to us in Matthew chapter 28, and that one singular name that is given would be that of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and their revelation that they have been given. It's not a specific name like Father or Son or even Jesus. So when he specifies one singular name, you're saying that's not really one singular name that specifies? I, I am saying that to be baptized into something, especially given, to use your own uh, emphasis here, the Old Testament background, uh, the, the children of Israel, for example, were baptized into Moses. Well, what does that mean? Uh, there, there's, there's something much more about names uh, in the Old Testament than 
Bob or Paul or Tom or something like we would have today. And in fact, a name represented the character of an individual. And so to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to be baptized into the fullness of the revelation that has been made in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the triune God who has revealed himself to us. Yes, there's something different about names, plural, but there is no plural names here. So if I just asked you, what is the name of the Son, sir, what would you say? Uh, I specifically said uh, just a moment ago when I said there's something different about names, I was speaking generically. Previous to that, I had specifically said that the term here is singular. It is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That would be into the character, actions, and revelation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Revelation 22, 3 through 4, there's one name, one face for God and the Lamb sitting upon one throne. How many persons does one name, one face, and one throne naturally imply? I'm sorry, what was the reference? Uh, Revelation 22, 3 through 4. Oh, 3 through 4. Do I need to repeat the question? No, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will, will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have any need of the lamp, a light of lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Uh, my belief of exegesis is that you allow an entire book to speak for itself, Uh, Jesus has been clearly identified as God and has been clearly differentiated from God already in this book. He is the lamb standing as a slain before the father. So now he's called the lamb. And just as Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians that a time will come when even the son delivers over the kingdom to the father so that God may be all in all here at the final, the final wrapping up of all things. We have the Father, the Son, the Spirit. We have their roles have been completed. Heaven has been brought into existence. His name will be on their foreheads. And you have the unifying of the worship of the one true God that signifies the fact that he has been victorious over all those forces that were against him. It's a beautiful text. All right. Yeah, very beautiful text. So, so when it says Revelation 22, 3 through 4, again, there's one name and one face for God and the Lamb. I didn't ask you about the rest of Revelation. I asked you about this text right here. (laughs) How many persons does one name and one face sitting on one throne naturally imply, sir? Uh, Well, I do not isolate text from the author. Do you remember that in John 17? I didn't finish finish that there. Uh, I do not isolate a text from its author, and I do not believe it is a meaningful form of exegesis to say, forgetting about the rest of Revelation that made all these distinctions, what would this naturally assume? When you say naturally, I mean naturally in context. And in context, it would not lead one to conclude that there is only one divine person because the Lamb has been clearly differentiated from the Father who sits upon the throne. Which divine person sent the Son, sir? The Father. The Father? Yes. So in Luke 4 and 18, when Jesus said, the Spirit sent me, which person sent him, sir? A uh, different context, is it not, sir? But you just said that the f- yes, father I, sent him. Yes, I, I always, my comments are always meant to be taken in the context of the text. That I'm How was that a violation of context, what I just asked you? Because there are two different contexts in two different sendings. I just, I didn't. Thank you, gentlemen. Your time has elapsed for this cross-examination. Let's give him a round of applause. It's a difficult format. All right, well, we've heard... 
introductory speeches, we've heard attack and defence of main arguments, we've heard interaction and cross-examination. We're now left with one round to go and that is the closing statements. Um, yeah, thank you, uh, gentlemen. Thank you, Dr. White, Mr. Perkins and our moderator, Craig Zaki. Really appreciate your time. We haven't got a great deal of time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick three, four questions for each. We're giving each person presented with a question 90 seconds to answer, then the other person 30 seconds to respond. You're right, Tua? Yep. You're on to that? Great. So what we're going to do is what I've tried to do is, is, is pool a general representation of the questions. In fact, there was about three questions that got asked about, a, I don't know, a thousand times it seems. So, so if your question doesn't get asked, it's probably just because the majority really won this particular democracy of sorts. So what we're going to do, true to form, we're going to start with affirmative. I'll ask uh, Dr. White three questions. Roger will have 30 seconds to respond to each 90 second answer. Then we'll turn the tables and we'll ask Mr. Perkins some questions. So if I can read these handwriting, here we go, Dr. White. How could God send himself? Would he not think to himself to go instead of asking, instead of sending someone else? John 8.42 is a reference there. I find it rather odd that in light of the fact that we're talking about incarnation and the fact that the entire, the entire Old Testament talks about God sending prophets, we're talking about something coming from God into human experience, something coming into this world. And so, just as the prophets were sent by God, Jesus says he has been sent by God. And he says it in a different way, and the Jews pick up on it, no question about it. But since we're talking, did Jesus have a physical body? Did he live at a particular time and place? He certainly did. And so, we're, in light of the incarnation, there is no question whatsoever about the propriety of using the terminology such, such as sent, the idea that, well, God's omnipresent, so you can't send him anywhere. Well, God's omnipresent. Does that all the Old Testament passages about God came from Mount Timor? Well, what's that supposed to communicate to us? The reality is that when Jesus talks about being sent by the Father, he's talking about not so much a spatial movement from heaven to earth as it is the authority that he bears from the Father. And so it, it just simply isn't, uh, I, I think, a, a meaningful objection whatsoever to what we're talking about. Right. And we just heard that just as the prophets were sent, so Jesus was sent. The prophets were human beings. So, again, the analogy and the concept in his mind is that the son is as radically separated as human beings. That is not biblical monotheism, despite the protestations to the contrary. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Next question, Dr. White, is this. There are many references to the Spirit in the Old Testament. Is this proof of the Holy Spirit existing before the New Testament? Well, I don't think there's any question that the Spirit hovers over the face of the waters. Um, uh, but again, my emphasis has always been in reference to the biblical revelation that the clarity that is the birthright of Christians because we have the New Testament is found in the revelation God made of himself between the Testaments. The prophecies were there. The people of God were waiting. Then the time came when God sent forth his Son. Not God created a human nature and joined himself to it, but God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. And so the incarnation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the ministry of Jesus the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 
are the evidences. Since, for example, even Jesus, in talking about the coming of the Spirit, the Spirit will have a different role. He comes from the Father. Mr. Perkins, I think, believes that the Father is the Spirit. And so, how can, how can you know, if you want to ask about being sent, how can the Father send himself in that way? That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me, and that would, I think, be an even better question. They're, they make these distinctions very clearly throughout the text of the New Testament. And if we believe all of Revelation, then we have to allow that Revelation to speak to everything we believe. All right. Again, we just heard that the revelation of the Trinity, whom he says is the true God, is the real identity of God, took place between the Testaments, which again implicates that there was no true revelation of the Old Testament, though they knew him on the most intimate terms possible. They interacted with him face to face. Moses spoke with him mouth to mouth. Abraham was the very friend of God, but you didn't have the true revelation of who he was. I'm sorry, we reject that. Thank you, gentlemen. Last question for Dr. White. Why does Jesus on the cross say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can God separate one person from another within himself? Well, I think we need to be very, very careful at that point. Um, <clears throat> Jesus is saying, Elo Elo Lama Sabachthani, is a quotation of Psalm uh, 22. And you've got to remember the Jewish people, the Psalter was their hymn book. And so when... Though this may ruin a lot of really good preaching you've heard, there are a lot of people that say, well, at this point, the Father turned his back on the Son. Well, that makes for great preaching, but if you'll notice, the very next words of Jesus are in the second person directly addressed to the Father. And if at the very point where the Son renders his greatest obedience to the Father, there's a fundamental disruption in the Godhead, you would think that would be noted somewhere in the text of Scripture. It's not. If you look at Psalm 22... Read the rest of the psalm. Not only is it clearly a messianic psalm about the sufferings of the Messiah, but it ends with the vindication of that suffering Messiah. And so by simply quoting the first few words, Jesus is bringing to mind the entirety of the psalm that is being fulfilled in what he himself is experiencing. And he wants everyone else to realize that too. It'd just be like, if I said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, do I have to finish the song? No, we all know it. In the same way the Jews knew Psalm 22, by uttering those words, he's bringing the fullness of that revelation to bear in saying, this is now being fulfilled in me. And it's a beautiful thing to behold. All right, Mr. White just said that you would think that what he was saying would be noted in the text. But what else we would think would be noted in the text is that there were 40, at least 40 different writers writing independent of one another and also in corroboration with one another over 15 to 1600 years of writing by independent authors. And not a one of them derived and came to the conclusion of the Trinitarian position. They had no problem coming to that with the gospel. We all agree you have to be saved by the gospel, yet that's very clearly spelled out. Yet it would be very strange that there's so much debate and banter over the very identity of God, which Mr. White says you've got to believe to be saved, and yet we don't find it. Nowhere spelled out. Thank you, gentlemen. Now we'll turn to Mr. Perkins and present a few questions for him to answer. He'll have 90 seconds to respond, and then Dr. White will give his 30-second rebuttal. <laughs> so, Mr. Perkins, the first question is please identify who in the Old Testament, is the angel of the Lord. Secondly, please explain theophanies and Christophanies also. Theophanies. Sorry, good luck. Theophanies, simply a um, 
temporal manifestation of God, temporal appearance of God. Um, regarding the angel of the Lord, what's interesting is I'm always astounded when Trinitarians appeal to the angel of the Lord to say that that is actually the preexistent son in the Old Testament. When Hebrews chapter one explicitly says to which of the angels did he ever say you are my son? So we got a scripture in Hebrews that explicitly states that God has never called an angel the son. Um, I, I was interested. He brought up the Isaiah six passage with the angels that are worshiping Yahweh and then said that John says that was the son as if to say that is the pre-incarnate uh, son. Yet the angels were worshiping around Yahweh. And the Hebrews chapter one says that when he brings the firstborn or the son into the world, then he says, let all the angels of God worship him, which indicates grammatically that they were not worshiping the son under the Old Testament or else they would not have to be told to worship the son. So I. I, I don't see how angels of the Lord in any way, shape, or form. And I have many quotes right here by Bruce Metzger and many others that say that no one can use angel of the Lord to denote a second person in the dream. I, I, I would love to know what in the text demands that in Hebrews 1, 6, uh, this means they were not worshiping him before. The, the text is very clear in John chapter 12 that Jesus is the one who was seen by Isaiah. It's, it's not questionable. We don't need to make Hebrews contradictory to that. And there's nothing in the, in the Greek grammar in any way, shape, or form that indicates that. So I, 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 don't, I don't follow what the argument was there. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. One more. Uh, again, another for you, Mr. Perkins. Who was Jesus talking to in, per se, Matthew 27:46? Why would Jesus talk to himself and call himself God if the Father did not simultaneously exist as a divine person? What does the text say? My, uh, the text is I've just been given a reference by his Matthew Was it Matthew 27:46? It is, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, as Mr. White just said, uh, it is a quotation from the book of Psalm, and, and from a Trinitarian perspective, it would be very strange language. My God, my God. God the Son is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it would be very odd language for God the Son, a second co-equal person in a Trinity, to be calling the first person, we would have to assume the first person. We don't know if it would be the first or the third person. But whichever person he would be referring to, calling him his God. Now, Mr. White usually says, well, Perkins argues like a Muslim there. Yet Mr. White tells us all the time that Jesus never said God is the Father, which is the very identical arguments that the Muslims use when they say, well, Jesus never said I am God. So I don't see that. He also said that uh, since we're referring to the scripture, which is a messianical prophecy from Psalm 22, he said we need to read the rest of the Psalm 22. I couldn't agree more because in Psalm 22 and 10, the messianical prophecy says that he will. Uh, the son says he will be in, in the context of prophecy, says he he will he will have a God from his mother's womb. So whenever we come to Hebrews chapter 10 and there's a reference to a body and he says, oh, God, Mr. White tells us that's preexistence. Yet in Psalm 22, it says, no, I'll have a God from my mother's womb. I'd rather stick with what the text says. We believe exactly what the Bible says here. If the second person of the tree becomes incarnate, will he be an atheist? Will he not have a God? If he's a perfect man, will he be an atheist? There's nothing unusual. The only person who could say that there's something unusual about saying, my God, my God, just doesn't understand what we believe about the doctrine of the Trinity or the incarnation. Because that would be saying, if Jesus be, truly became man, he would not worship the Father. How does that work? Thank you. Last question for you, Mr. Perkins. And this 
In fact, by way of preface, was the most common question we received. So the text will be, and by most common, I mean about 12 to 1. So here it is. So just about all of you are going to say, wow, I'm glad he asked my question. Here it is. The text will be, in Genesis, the creation account, we do note personal, plural pronouns that God employs for himself. If it's your belief that singular personal pronouns are as emphatically conclusive as you claim, how do you deal with the plural ones, particularly in the creation account? I'm glad it was brought up. Um, Genesis chapter 1, let us create man, and God said, let us create man in our image. The verb said is singular, not plural. And we were told tonight that plural verbs indicate plural subjects, yet the verb is singular. God said. So what does the singular verb indicate? Plus, if God is being defined as a trinity, who was the trinity speaking to? It would be someone outside of the trinity that was speaking. Um, I have always understood that to mean that God was speaking to angels. Um, there's a lot of debate about that, but that's personally what I believe. Um, of course, your belief is as good as mine, I guess, and mine is as good as yours. But I believe that he was referring to the angels because when we look at the other plural pronouns he's addressing, it's very clear that he is speaking to angels in the other in the other. Uh, instances. So I see no reason why this would would flop right here. And the Jews have certainly never understood it to be a plurality of persons in the Godhead. So I wouldn't take uh, six plural pronouns with angels right there and say, well, we got a trinity right here and fly that in the face of 9,000 singular personal pronouns. It is a hermeneutical error to use the micro to override the macro and to interpret the macro in the lens of the micro. So I don't see a problem. There is the hermeneutical error that is the heart of the oneness position. You don't say, oh, 9,000 means you forget about the three. You harmonize them. And how do we harmonize them? The 9,000 teach us monotheism. The three or however many else there, there might be in light of the New Testament fulfillment speak to us of the plurality. You allow it all to speak. You don't just say this outweighs that. That's the hermeneutical error of oneness. Well, thank you very much. That will end our audience question times and will also bring us to the end of our debate. Hope you had a good night. First and foremost, I'd ask for your round of applause and thanks to our moderator who's done a great job. And we do thank you, Craig Zaki, for your help this evening. And lastly, we thank you, our contestants. They've been spirited, they've been vibrant, they've been concise and, and for the most part, somewhat clear and very clear on their position. And I hope that no one here tonight goes away any mistaking as to what each of them believes. It is a great object for us to come and see contrast, to see theology being bounced about among two particular contestants who have very, very antithetical views on the nature and the being of God. And it's our privilege to view that, acknowledge that, and ask ourselves the question, wherein is the greater biblical exegesis being employed to conclude? Is God Trinitarian in personage and singular in being? Or as our oneness brothers and sisters would say, is God singular in being and person? So I would ask for your round of applause for both of our contestants, thanking them this evening. And in this section, the, each speaker should crystallise the debate. Not just their own points, but the points of clash tonight. Crystallise it and put it into the context of the whole debate to prove that their side is superior.
So for the first closing statement round, I invite our affirmative speaker, Dr. James White. Well, let me thank you for your attention uh, this evening. Uh, It has been a a long evening, but you have been very attentive, and I appreciate that very much. I hope that the issues have been made clear to you. This evening, you have had two very, very different forms of hermeneutics and interpretation presented to you. I have stood before you and said we must take all of Scripture. We must examine Scripture in its original language. We must examine Scripture in its original context. And we must allow all of Scripture to speak. I believe we have illustrated repeatedly in looking at Philippians chapter 2 and looking at John chapter 17 and looking at John chapter 1 that when we do so and we allow the context to stand, when we deal with the language in a meaningful fashion, that we see that the Son as a divine person preexisted his birth in Bethlehem. This is the natural use of the language. This is the use of the language in light of its grammar, its syntax. It is the means that we use to communicate to one another, and it's the means that God has used to communicate to us. The attempted response, there was no exegesis offered, but during cross-examination, we did, I brought up all of those texts once again. And I leave it to you as the audience to judge whether Mr. Perkins was able to consistently respond to questions, and to handle the text of Scripture in an appropriate way. I do not believe that he did. And I think that was very clear. And I think another issue was brought up very clearly, and that was Colossians chapter 1. And I believe likewise, that text made it very, very clear that the one by whom all things were made, that is personal agency, not a plan, not an idealized plan, The Logos was a person. He's personal. He existed in pre-existence, in eternity past. He is the one who was involved in creation. To deny this is to completely destroy Paul's argument against the proto-gnostics in Colossians chapter 1. And so we have had at least four texts. We had one text that was never touched. We have heard nothing from Mr. Perkins about who the mediator is. Who is Jesus interceding before today? I've not heard a single word in response to that question uh, as to who is Jesus today? If the Father is now the Holy Spirit, is Jesus a human being who is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit? And if so, is, is this combination in heaven and who is he appearing before? It can't be the Father because the Father is now the Holy Spirit. So I would still like to have at least an answer to that question. And I apologize for not pressing that in the cross-examination. I should have. uh, But I only just now thought of it as we were summarizing the debate. We heard no answer to those particular issues in regards to the issue of mediatorship in any way, shape, or form. We did have the assertion said that the first person and the third person sent the second person down to be beaten and mocked and crucified. Instead of the New Testament presentation of the perfect harmony of the Father and the Son in doing all things, John chapter 5, 
the perfect harmony of the Father and the Son, the sending of the Spirit in John 14 and 16. It is interesting how the Spirit can be sent by the Father if he is the Father, but that's a whole other issue. We have perfect harmony in the Godhead in bringing about the salvation of God's people. It is not that one is sent unwillingly. When Jesus says he does not come of his own, he's saying in distinction from the Father. He has come because the Father has sent him, but he has come voluntarily. And that voluntary coming is the very essence and demonstration of the condescension of God. And the love that we see in the cross of Christ, that love which is so deep because in the cross we likewise see the very wrath of God. Wrath of God against sin which brought this about. If Jesus was not truly the God-man, and there was not a Father whose wrath was being poured out, Upon whom? Who was God's wrath poured out upon? Just the human nature? Who was providing propitiation? A propitiatory sacrifice. A sacrifice that takes away the reason for the wrath and the guilt for sin. How can you have that in the oneness perspective? I don't know. I do not know. We have not heard this evening. Is this an important issue? The Apostle John thought it was. When he wrote the gospel in John chapter 5, he quoted Jesus saying, We must honor the Son even as we honor the Father. The one not honoring the Son is not honoring the Father who sent him. To the Son has been given to have life, and he can give life to whoever he pleases. Is that just a human nature? How do you honor the Father and the Son in oneness theology when the Son didn't come into existence until Bethlehem and he's a human nature? But even more so, in 1 John 2.23 we are told, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Is this just a an argument over little words. I mean, let's face it. I was really pushing on prepositions tonight. Of course, he was in Colossians 1, and Paul's the one who used about every preposition in the Greek language to make sure there was no escaping the fact that Jesus, as the Son of God, is the creator of all things. But I was talking about prepositions. And I asked questions about the Greek language and verbs and and all those things, which, of course, are extremely important because God used them to communicate his truth to us. But is it really just for theologians to argue about these things? I would like to suggest to you, no. Because in a very simple book, First John is the simplest book in the New Testament. It's the first book we translate and we learn the language because it's, it's real easy Greek. And it's meant to be very simple and very straightforward, but in this very simple book, the Holy Spirit of God, through John, says whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. What does it mean to deny the Son? Well, one of, one of John's own statements is that the Son has come in the flesh. Not that the Son was the flesh, but the Son has come in the flesh. What does that mean unless the Son preexisted? He was that word that was with the Father. He was that word who became flesh. That's not a plan. 
And my great fear is that many who hold to an unbiblical tradition on this matter are cutting themselves off by so doing from having the very eternal life that we all we all desire and that we all pursue after, but we can only find in one way. So the importance of the debate this evening should be very straightforward. We are talking about the God who has revealed himself to us. And we are talking about whether the Son is a human being that came into existence at his birth in Bethlehem, or whether the Son is a divine, pre-existent person who is eternally in perfect community and harmony with the Father, perfect communion, which continued in his life so that when Jesus prays his high priestly prayer, it's not the human side of him having a conversation with the divine side of him. It is the one who has been sent into the world. It is the God-man speaking to the Father who has not become incarnate. The Father hasn't become incarnate. It's the Son who's become incarnate. And if we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we need to know who He is. I would like to, as I normally do, give something to my opponent this evening. Uh, It is a book that I wrote on the doctrine of justification because I think this touches upon it. Maybe it's something we can discuss sometime in the future, how we're made right with God. Uh, Mr. Perkins, though, we've had strong words this evening. Uh, I appreciate your coming all the way down here, and uh, I would like to give this to you. Thank you all for being here this evening. I hope you will take the time to consider what has been said tonight. Go to the Word of God and consider the importance of our knowing who Jesus Christ truly is. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. White. Now, to close our debate tonight, let's welcome once again for the last time, Mr. Roger Perkins. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's been an honor to be here tonight. And again, I appreciate all of the sacrifice that has gone forth from Mr. Ireland and this local congregation. And uh, though you wouldn't know it, I even appreciate Mr. White being here. And uh, I have enjoyed myself. Um, as you can see, we're poles apart theologically. Um, he has said tonight, and you have heard him say tonight, that he has no problem saying that there are separate minds in God. I asked him that first rattle out of the box from the question. He had no problem saying that there are separate minds in God and then tells me that we're the ones who are guilty of unbiblical uh, tradition. I would say if separate minds in God that no one knew existed for 70 percent of the Bible is not unbiblical tradition. I don't know what is. Um, he has said that we are we believe that the son is just the human nature. You expressly heard me say we do not believe that the son is just the human nature, but that the son is the one Old Testament God manifest in the flesh. So he's misunderstood that he says that we he can allow the natural use of the language Apparently, until we come to where Jesus, uh, the Old Testament God says, I'm all alone and by myself using singular personal pronouns. And then when we come to the New Testament, we read that that God was manifest in the flesh. So that is the natural use of the language. 
He said that I did not respond at all uh, to Colossians 1 and the things that he brought up in Colossians chapter 1. Yet we didn't hear one thing about what I presented to him from Bauer's Greek English lexicon. And I have tons of other sources sitting right over there that say that in verse 15, image is defined as the human figure. We didn't hear nothing about that either. Uh, He has brought up the mediator, and I'm not trying to avoid his arguments, as I've been accused tonight. The mediator, Paul tells us who the mediator was. There was one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So there's the answer right out of the word of God. Um, He says that whenever Jesus says that I came not of myself, it was in distinction of the father. It doesn't help matters none. He still said, I did not come in distinction from the Father. I did not come on my own accord. So from a Trinitarian perspective, we have the second divine person who he tells us volunteered to come, saying, no, I didn't come of my own accord. I'd rather believe the words of Jesus than the words of James White. Uh, he says that if you deny the Son, then you, you don't have the Father. Yeah, exactly. And he brought up John chapter 14 as well in the same context. Yeah, John chapter 4. What does John 14 say? Have I been so long with you, Philip, that you still don't know me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. What sense does that make? What kind? If you ask me to see my, my father and my father is a separate person than I am that has his own mind apart from me. And I responded by, hey, don't you know that the one that I've been with you all this time, you're still asking to see? It makes no sense whatsoever. But Jesus did not hesitate to use singular personal pronouns when asked about the location of the father. Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know me? Makes absolutely no sense from a Trinitarian perspective. The reason that you, if you deny the Son, you don't have the Father is because the Son is the one Old Testament God manifest in the flesh. First Timothy 3.16, which he argues for in his book, The King James Only Controversy, says Theos, God, was manifest in the flesh. It's not a different God or a second individual with his own mind. It's just God who was manifest to us in the flesh. And he tells us that... His concern, and I appreciate his concern, I really do, but we have equal concern. Uh, he says that he is afraid that our position would cut off from eternity. If worshiping a three-minded God that no one knew existed from 70% of the Bible and 4,000 years of Hebrew revelation, though they knew him on the most intimate terms, does not jeopardize one's salvation, I don't know what does. We don't have another Jesus coming. We have the same God of the Old Testament coming in the flesh to die for our sins. Um, In John chapter 17, he says that it's not the human side conversing with the divine side. Well, let me tell you what else it wasn't. It wasn't God the Son talking to God the Father. It wasn't one God who has his own mind talking to another God that has his own mind. Us persons, text doesn't say persons. You can't just make up your own Bible, ladies and gentlemen. So in, in, in my final speech here and in closing here, I would just simply tell you the words of Jesus. Jesus said that we should believe on him as the scriptures have said. The scriptures do not say and state the Trinitarian position. I'm giving you what the Bible says, ladies and gentlemen. The Trinitarian side is giving you what the Bible does not say. Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. The Bible says that the Lord is the Spirit. Spirit. Now we heard all kinds of explanations and explaining it away tonight, uh, but it still says after 
after all the explanations, the Lord is the spirit in Second Corinthians three and 17. What the Bible says is that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What the Bible says is that God was manifest in the flesh. That's what the Bible says. I'm giving you what Scripture says. What Mr. White has given you is that there's three divine minds in God, three separate individuals that the Bible never says, and I'm jeopardizing my soul. I would say that is the jeopardizing of a soul. So Abraham was the friend of God, but according to this construct, he really didn't truly know him. Moses spoke with him face mouth to mouth, knew him face to face, but he didn't really truly know the true God because God didn't reveal who he really was until the incarnation. You see, all 70 percent of the Bible, they all knew him personally, one on one, but they really didn't know who he was. This is the doctrine that's been presented to you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. In our position, the same one familiar God we've been reading about the whole time under the Old Testament is the same God that came in the New Testament. In the Trinitarian position, a second divine individual that no one knew one thing about in the Old Testament is the one who came in the, in the New Testament. He's been pulling the wool over the eyes, apparently, the whole time for 70% of the Bible. That is not the biblical declaration of God. Jesus is one God of the Old Testament manifest in the flesh, and I hope that you will come to know this one God. God bless you so much. Thank you so much.